0: I need to know everything. Who in the what in the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I act like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I happen the pour some five on a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver and science to let them and talk up their body. Another one body. That's just how it goes. Hello and welcome to JK Plus One. I am your host, Jonathan Kenshin. I am not ptf um i don't know what he's doing he's probably got that beard and he's probably out there faking like he's santa claus with that beard he wouldn't be a good santa claus he's a little bit too thin he's been running marathons and stuff like that but you know throw a little white beard a little red hat i think ptf would 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 do well as a santa claus always bringing holiday cheer (laughs) anyways uh uh almost merry christmas right it's christmas eve Uh, well it's christmas eve and i'm recording this intro uh frank and i recorded uh oh i spilled the beans our our podcast a couple days ago but we had some issues with the tech i thought we were going to lose it we ended up saving it so that's the first uh christmas gift we got this year but uh uh, it should be fun it should be fun Uh, the stockings are up the trees are up we're ready to rock and roll over here we'll see if uh santa can slide by and drop off some good stuff for for uh for austin um i'm not sure if i'm gonna get anything we'll see i think that uh, my breeders cup betting challenge probably was my early christmas present so that's all right i'm cool with that uh i guess this week that i'm so excited about um someone that uh i've always wanted to have on someone who I always found to be you know one of the most interesting characters in racing and and uh he really, he really laid it out. He he gave us uh, the, the the inside scoop on a lot of things that are his life and his career, and and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, it's got some moments of, of of sadness that end with positive stories, right? Um, that end with with a have a good outcome. But uh, uh, my guest today is uh, Frank Miramati, the voice of San Anita, and um a a character like i mentioned before and so i i hope that you all will enjoy this episode as much as i do i can tell you it's it's one of my favorites just to kind of have that behind the scenes look we talk a little bit about uh the audition with michael rona uh a couple years back and and not not getting that and then what that turned out to uh we talked about some health stuff uh we, we 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 don't go too deep into it but we brush the surface on on some of the darker parts of gambling and and then um and then we just talk about racing in general. And uh, so excited to hear Frank's voice uh, here in a couple of days on one of my favorite days of racing. And I'll talk to Frank about that as well. And that's opening day at Santa Anita, the day after Christmas, December 26th. So it's always uh, always a lot of fun. So really looking forward to, to, to hearing Frank, and, uh, and I hope you'll enjoy it as well. Uh, but uh, there's that thing again where I start talking and then I forget to stop talking. So now I'll stop talking. The mirror, man. I've been waiting for a long time for this one. Frank, what's going on?
1: Hey, man. Great to hear your voice. Honor to be on your show.
0: Oh man, I, this is this is going to be a fun one. Uh, it, it, some of my favorite moments are hanging out in the Eddie Logan uh, after hours, and uh, and you coming down and and, and telling stories, and us uh, talking about the excitement and the disappointments of the day. And uh, and I got to start by telling you that um, one of the greatest moments in my memory of the racetrack with my father are, uh, the day that we came up at Santa Anita when you were in the middle of that audition that we'll talk about. And, um, he got to, to watch you do it and he got to see the race from up there. And you gave one of my favorite calls you've ever given is when melatonin won and you said he put him to sleep. And, uh, I just wanted, you know, when I think about my dad in the racetrack, uh, you're right there in the, in the background of that.
1: I'm deeply honored to know that your dad was a very cool guy and, uh, It turned out I recently found out that your dad was very close friends with a guy who used to be a a boss of mine that I worked with. I couldn't believe what a small, I mean, every day you find out how small the world is. But that, uh, you know, having your dad up there, obviously my dad, who I lost in 97, was my racetrack buddy. To know you were hanging out with your dad and knowing that you bring your son out to the races and that he had a good moment up there uh, makes my day. But I'm so glad I had a chance to meet him. What a cool guy.
0: I forgot about that. That's right. uh Barry, right? And you know Barry?
1: Barry Staunton, I know, but I know David Sonny. David um, Sonny. Okay, I thought it was David, Barry Yeah, yeah. yeah David, David Sonny. Barry Staunton worked for David Sonny, so I thought maybe it was, it was maybe he knew both of those guys, but yeah. David Sonny um possibly I I wanna know if I'm giving him too much credit. Certainly one of the greatest phone men, quote unquote, phone man Um that I've ever known, I was in the advertising business and I've sold advertising for over 30 years. I still do today, but I used to work for him for a company called Register Tape International, which became Register Tape Network. Anyway, he had this room in Valencia where he would try to renew customers who didn't renew their ads with us out in the field when I used to sell Register Tape ads. And we should get into that at some point about Register Tape advertising sales and calling races combined. But anyway, uh, he was great, but he used to bust my chops like no one else, and so we've had a very contentious relationship. But we stay in contact, and we're good friends. And when he told me the small world about knowing your dad and how close they were, going way back when, it was uh, it was amazing. You just could never picture how people's lives can intersect. But uh, he's a classic character. That guy.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. That that is. Yeah, my dad. You know, he grew up in Detroit, and he had just a bunch of random friends all over the world. And 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 David Sonny's like one that I've heard his name like forever. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I didn't see my dad back in those days. I'm sure it was an adventure. Um, <laughs> that's what I've that's heard. Sure. Um, your first time at the racetrack, you went with your dad?
1: I'm sure I did. It was probably my mom and dad. I don't, you know, I'm not one of these guys that can remember the first day I walked in and then it was just some majestic deal. I didn't even know where I was when I was at the track for the first time, but my early memories are certainly going with my dad, and my mom was involved in that, too. You know, I don't give her enough credit um, as being there, but believe me, she endured quite a bit of uh, race tracking in her time. And uh, she watches my races every single day to this day, which is, I tell her, Mom, I couldn't listen to this. How are you listening to this? But uh, But she does, and she loves it, and she still picks her horses. She's a pretty good handicapper, too.
0: Oh, that's awesome. What, what, uh, you know, I've always thought that it was one of the most bizarre things. And I know you have some thoughts about it that you could probably speak on now when you couldn't prior. But I always thought that audition that you and Michael Rona had to do was, I just felt like it was a weird thing to do to kind of put you guys in front of the world. And then, and then you, and then it, and then you had, you know, people that were on your side that were making fun of him, people on his side making fun of you. And it just became this kind of, thing that didn't feel very warm and fuzzy. And and I thought it was like a kind of like they wanted to kind of pull a stunt that didn't really work. What what were your thoughts about that entire process?
1: Well, I got the call. It was an interesting phone call. I got the call while I was at Los Alamitos calling races. And I had gone, a friend of mine was running a horse that day at Los Al and in between race, it was thoroughbreds obviously, but in between races, I went down to that area um next to the vessels club or at the vessels club to find him so i'm walking around looking for my buddy to just give him a quick hello he had some guests i just want to you know we have 28 minutes between races or something i was just say hello good luck et cetera, et cetera. and i look at my phone and the phone shows me joe morris is calling so i'm pick. i'm figuring that i must have just walked by his table and he's saying hey what are you doing here go back to your post and um i um he wasn't there. He was calling from Santa Anita, and he and Amy Zimmerman were on the phone. and They they told me that it was a very confidential conversation, and that no one was to hear what I was going to say. But that the next day, Trevor Denman would be retiring, and my heart sank because the first thing I thought about was, "Is he okay?" I mean, this is my idol. No one. There might be people who love Trevor Denman as much as I do in terms of his body of work, and I wouldn't take that away from them, but. I would give a compelling argument that no one loves him more. Maybe the same. I'll give you a dead heat. I won't give you that, you that you're into his work more than I am. And so in a sense, my heart sank. And then at the other time, I thought, well, there only, there's only one reason they're making this call. So um, they told me that he would be announcing his retirement tomorrow. I asked if he was okay. He, they said he's fine. It's just this is what he had decided. And I didn't know at that point that he was going to continue at Del Mar. I thought he was just basically, you know, stepping away. And um, I don't remember the next few words, but I know that I told him, I'm ready to go, (laughs) whatever you need, absolutely, not even a question mark. Of course, at the time, I was working at Oakland Park. And um, to me, nothing can compare to Santa Anita, nothing ever could or would. And so I didn't even think twice about it, certainly no disrespect to Oakland. But I just said, uh, you know, whatever I said. And at that point, shortly, you know, into the conversation, I was told that they want to let the fans decide and that they're also, um, you know, that Michael Rona is another contender and that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, as soon as I heard that, of course, I knew that Michael worked for Joe Morris at golden gate and they were friends as well as, you know, working together. So I know that in that circumstance, um, you know, I know where I stand. I'm going to have to really, uh, fire a big shot, but anyway, I just said, "Look, I'm in. I'm so excited." Blah blah blah. And then they explained to me what they were going to do, and they were that they were going to have us, and that when he came down there, I'd be at Golden Gate, and um, so on and so forth. So, needless to say, I was extremely excited about the opportunity, and I felt that with me giving up Oakland, I, I really felt. And I asked later in the process. I think I asked Amy in a in a follow up phone call when they were making the schedule. I was hoping to be able to do opening day because after all I'm leaving Oakland. And, uh, you know, I think that for whatever reason, I felt like I should do opening day. I don't know why, but I just felt I should in that circumstance because since he worked for the company, so that's a very long winded start to trying to answer your question about the whole process. I was not as, uh, even close to the, you know, uh, negative mindset that a lot of people had about the whole audition process. I felt that in this circumstance there there are many ways to look at it. The obvious way that you're looking at it is look, you know who these two guys are, make your decision and go on with it, which I can certainly appreciate and respect and almost wish that that would have happened that way, but um the other thing is it, it was an opportunity to try to you know do my best work have him do his best work in a setting that was the ultimate place and uh you know may the best man win put up or shut up i think that the only reason i may side with the fact that it was a tough deal was that i had already spent the previous two years um calling about 10 days to fill in for trevor at san anita so there wasn't the question How would Frank do here at Santa Anita? They knew how I would do. And for that, I guess in that case, I could say, all right, you know, maybe they should have just picked their guy. But look, the world has changed. There's reality shows, there's The Voice, there are all these different things where people, you know, get on stage and do the best they can. And for me, the opportunity to have a showdown of sorts. This is before I knew that there were going to be some international shippers coming in. I was fine with it because I hoped that my work and my style would resonate with the fans and management. And I knew that the only reason I filled in at Santa Anita in 2014 and 2015 was because I had spoken to Keith Brackpool directly. And it was just incredible timing. And I, without getting into details, I must give my man TQ, Tom Quigley, uh, just a, a wild assist that it's almost, you know, like sometimes you're playing hockey or you're watching hockey and then there's like some pass and it just turns into a goal, but it shouldn't have. Quigley and I were having a conversation after the 2014 Oakland meet. and. That conversation, even though it didn't have detail, prompted me to pick up the phone the next day and call Keith Brackpool and say to him, Keith, I just want to let you know that, and I, I had had a couple of conversations with Keith. He was the chairman of the horse racing board. Um, I felt he was a fan of mine. At least we respect, he respected me. I certainly respected him. But I called him and I said, Mr. Brackpool, I just wanted to let you know something. With the date situation being what they are. In the past, Trevor has never wanted to work an entire year. If there's ever an opportunity for me to do any kind of fill-in whatsoever, I want to share with you my thoughts about Santa Anita. And, and so we went into this discussion. And I I had no idea that Trevor was about to take days off, and that not only that, that Santa Anita was about to make a decision on this topic. I had no idea nor did Tom Quigley tell me that that process was going on. But what he said to me prompted me to just in a way, almost just try to define or figure out if I ever had a chance ever. And I thought this would be a good time because if Trevor takes a vacation, I felt in my heart, there's no doubt in my mind, Trevor would support me and back me if they went to him and that B um, I better, you know, speak up. I've been in sales my whole life. You must ask for the business. So I have a phone call with Keith. I share my passion for Santa Anita. I tell him stories of certain places I was for big caps. I tell him what that place means to me. And when Keith was the chairman of the California horse racing board, I don't want to say he was against the fairs because that wouldn't be fair to give him that, uh, to, to state his position, but it was my feeling that the the California authority of racing fairs in Northern California and Keith had some bucking of heads during those meetings and that that wouldn't be his number one destination, nor would it be his number one place to pick employees. I would just, and that's just handicapping the situation. I wouldn't think that, that he would say, oh, you're with the fairs, come on down. So I actually said this and I feel bad admitting this, but I believe in um, environments such as JK plus one, it's all about the content and you have to keep the listeners Listening, so you want to hear new things. If you're a listener, I said to Keith Brackpool in that conversation. I said, "Mr. Brackpool, I want you to know that if you were to invite me, and I keep in mind I'd called the twenty twelve, thirteen, and fourteen seasons at Oakland. Now, so I had those under my belt. I'd called some big races. I felt I was ready to fill in if they needed someone. I said, if it was your philosophy or your position." that you wouldn't want a guy who's calling bar JF hot ticket and Sarah Nelson to then come in and fill in at Santa Anita. I'll quit the fairs just for the opportunity to fill in. And no one will ever know why I did that. That's how passionate I was about that. I was set at Oakland at the time. I was doing some work with TVG from, you know, some freelance stuff. So I basically told him, Hey man, if this, and I remember that conversation, he started talking about some of the things he had done in his, you know, time at, at Santa Anita, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember he said at the end, we'll be getting back to you. It was the weirdest thing because I didn't, again, I had zero idea that not only was this about to happen, but it was about to happen quickly that Trevor was about to take some time off. A few days later, I got a call and it was Amy Zimmerman. And when she called me, I, I answered the phone. For some reason, I don't think her number came up. I think it was like private number or something from the Santa Anita. I don't know why, because I've gotten calls since then. But whatever. When the call came in, she said, "Hey, Frank, Amy Zimmerman." And I said, "Amy, can you hold on a minute?" Put her on hold. Went to an area that was quiet. My heart's beating heavily, not just because I was moving at a rapid pace, and I'm not exactly a, a former Olympian. Um, I, I just had a feeling like, "Holy cow!" She, she's, you know. And she says, "Hey, are you sitting down?" I said, "I am." And uh, she said, "We're going to have you come in and fill in for Trevor." Blah blah blah, and this and that. And he's leaving, and, and it was coming up real quick. I, I was like, "Unbelievable!" And I've always said to TQ, man, whatever you said in that conversation to me, which was so ob- which was so subtle, and uh, I, I always will appreciate him for that. And uh, and it was due to sounds of the game in the Eddie Logan suite. So he had he had just you know gotten some feelings, and uh, boom and it all worked out. Anyhow, going back to the audition, sorry about all that, going back to the audition, I always felt that the fact Keith Brackpool picked me in that circumstance, that even though Joe Morris was a senior vice president, that in the end, my experience has shown that the big boss makes the decision. The big boss picked me over Michael Rona when he had the option, because Michael worked for the company then. He could have easily said, come on down to Santa Anita, and he didn't. And I thought, if they're inviting me to an audition, I at least have a fair shake here. I, I, I never thought in a million years I was going to convince Joe Morris to hire me, but I'm proud of myself in saying, this is the ultimate put up or shut up on the biggest stage, and you just have to do the best you can and you know let your performance speak. So it was a grueling process because I have been a, a, a huge fan of Michael Rona's work. Michael Rona has helped me professionally. Um, I, I consider him one of the best race callers I've ever heard anywhere and a brilliant guy. And I, I, you know, at the same time we're in battle. And so when I was up at Golden Gate on the times when he was down at Santa Anita, I'm listening to him and I say this as, and as a real, a format, and I believe the same for him, there's no chance I would ever want him to make a mistake or sound bad or anything like that. Because in the end, he doesn't make many mistakes, and neither do I, thankfully. But I would want him to put his best foot forward, me put my best foot forward, and, and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. But it was stressful. Um, You know, the Twitter stuff you read, um, you know, the the haters that you don't know, but you may very well know who they are, but they're coming in in different fashion. I mean, there's some anonymous bashing, some all kinds. It was a stressful situation. And uh, at the same time, it was uh, exhilarating. I got to call Run Happy that opening day, which was perfect. It was fate, and uh, I, I got to call him winning the Malibu. My voice cracked in that race, which I was very upset with. But there's a commercial for Run Happy that that Malibu call plays on frequently, and I decided to, you know, I could have, I know the ad agency very well, and I could have cut out that part. But I believe my voice cracking in that race, for me at least, and it's really what what matters to me. Symbolizes my passion and joy for what was happening in that moment, not only for the horse, not only for calling the Malibu, but also calling it for Mattress Mac, and that I'm okay with my emotion coming out there, even though it's certainly far from ideal to have your voice cracking on a race that comes up over and over again. So it was a tough process. I believe that decision was made very early in the process, if not before it even began. Um, and uh, I, I got hints along the way that I was in trouble. And before that melatonin call, I was already told, I, I was told that they were going to make a decision in two weeks at one point, Joe Morris told me this, and I knew that Michael Rona was coming back in two weeks, and I couldn't imagine them making an announcement two weeks later, like, hey, buddy, you're here, but you're going to call three weeks, and you're out the door, so I was a little concerned about that, but I still kept my blinkers on, gave my best, and really believe that during my time there, I di- like, I didn't leave there thinking... I did a bad job, a poor job, an inadequate job. I felt like I had my chance to do the best I could do. I made some errors. I, you know, I had some mistakes, like every race caller does almost every day, that I would have loved to take back. He made some mistakes that I know he would have wanted to take back, and I felt like I did the best I could. And unfortunately, I, I got the call that uh, Richard Steele had waved me off and that uh, Michael got the job
0: what was your level of disappointment when, when you, you got to that point? And, and like you said, you, you kind of saw the the writing on the wall. It was, it looked like it was, it was coming, but you know, I, I think the reason it's, it's, I get so excited to talk to you about St. Anita is because of how much it means to you. And, and you talked about that, what you told Keith that you wouldn't, you'd quit the fairs the if that's what it was going to take to, to be able to be considered. So it, it's obviously an important situation for you. How, how disappointed were you that, that you, that you, you know, you felt like your, your dream job probably slipped through your hands. I, I
1: I'll tell you what it was a very disappointing, but the look on my mom's face when I told her made whatever I felt irrelevant. Um, I knew that I had done everything I could, and I knew also that based on some of my own past performance lines in life, uh, it was I was lucky to get to that race. you know I, I've had some mistakes that I've made that are well documented and some stupid decisions and things that could have easily prohibited me from ever being in that race. So I definitely drew in from the also eligibles to begin with. But, you know, sometimes those 15s and 16 saddle towels jog home, right? Um, <laughs> especially on the NCOs, baby. Oh, believe me, man, especially in New York. But I was highly disappointed. I felt it was coming. Um, but I still kept hope to the very end. When I handed in my key to the booth to Amy, I, I put a note on it saying, I hope I'm getting this back soon. So I, I was hopeful. But um, they gave it to him and, and, and my mom was crushed. I couldn't believe how, I was surprised. And, uh, but, but she was crushed. And uh, shortly thereafter, she got sick. And I don't know that it was related to that, but it was just a weird thing. She got lymphoma. And then, what, a few months after that, I got stage three colon cancer. And again, I'm not saying it, it was just a, those things put everything about Santa Anita in its proper perspective. Like, hey man, this is a job. And the one thing was, I now knew that I've called the Santa Anita Handicap. I've called the Malibu. I've filled it on several days. I've been in my idols booth. I stood next to Keith Brackpool in the voice calling a race as Trevor Denman with him right next to me. Like these are satisfying moments. And so I felt like I had done my thing. And my mom kept telling me, you never know. And I said, mom, please. I mean, you really, I know my mom's a wizard. I know she's predicted things, but mom, I'm not going to have that job. And she always told me that you just never know what, you know, God's plan is and, and uh, you know, it just somehow, uh, some way I believe was just uh, you know, you can't fight destiny and it was it was just meant to be. I was the Santa Anita track announcer in the movie Sea Biscuit. I was the Mammoth Park announcer in the movie Ruffian for ESPN, and those are two jobs I ended up getting. That's pretty weird, man. But uh it it, it was it was very, very, very disappointing, man. It was heartbreaking because i i wanted to you know in that case i just it was a must-win situation if there ever was one and they chose otherwise and you know my response to their decision was genuine and well documented and uh i thought michael had done a fantastic job and at the time i stated on mike willman's radio show that i always felt it was my destiny to eventually replace trevor when he retired because i was his best student but that one could also argue that it was Michael's destiny because he was removed from his job at Hollywood Park in 1992 when Trevor Denman came, when Trevor Denman was available, and Mr. Hubbard took over. So you got to see both sides. You can't always see it from your own perspective. So it was uh, it was a tough thing, but I took it like a man and uh, and accepted it and and moved on. And a few months later, I had many many bigger issues to can be concerned about than calling it the great race place
0: so i want to i want to fast forward to the to obviously you talk about the disappointing phone call you got um and then i want to fast forward to the to the phone call that actually led to you being the track announcer who's going to be calling opening day uh, on december 26th one of my favorite days in racing and very sad i'm not going to be able to be there but before we get to that before we before we jump ahead you you mentioned something i think a lot of people don't don't realize, cause I think it was fairly private, but I mean, there were some people that, you know, well wishes. Um, but that journey, um, was, did you feel like, was it a scary journey the entire time? Did it progressively get worse? Did it progressively get better? Was the prognosis good to get started? What, what was that like in the midst of, of, you know, kind of following up that big disappointment?
1: well i was at monmouth you're talking about getting sick i'm presuming correct um yeah i was i was at monmouth park i was having major stomach pain and you know uh it was it was hurting bad and the doctor dr angelo chinesi who's i mean he's admired by so many people in the racing industry and in other places just an absolute legend with instinct that is unmatched um I called him and I told him I was having some, some major stomach pain. He told me to come into his office. I went into his office and this was a classic moment. I walk into his office, which is the first aid at Mammoth Park. And Angelo is not afraid of the windows. He has some punching power behind him and he's not afraid to express his opinion frequently. And I walk into his office after having had this conversation with him. And when I get to his desk, I look And it's 18 minutes to post for the first at Saratoga. And I know he's mapping out his pick five. And I'm just laughing to myself saying, you talk about God having a sense of humor because if there's anyone who's been distracted by races versus the real world uh, more than me, good for them or bad for them. And I'm thinking like, this guy is right now thinking about the pick five and I'm coming in here in a world of hurt. So he comes up to me and he said, have you eaten anything differently? And in a weird thing, I had just bought this interesting mix from planters uh, of almonds, cashews, pistachios. I, I never had bought that little can. It's like the $9 version as opposed to the $5. You know what I mean? It's like the fancier thing. But for whatever reason, like two nights before, I had eaten a bunch of almonds. And I remember as I was eating those almonds, I said to myself, I wonder why I don't eat more almonds. These are great. Well, meanwhile, that might have like helped things along the way because... I had an impacted colon which was not a pleasant experience shortly afterward um so he touched my side and he said you might have diverticulitis he gave me Gatorade and Pepto-Bismol and I laughed when I left his office saying I myself, this guy's got to be kidding me with this and uh I went upstairs and in fact Bob Ike was visiting um from california and he had asked to go to dinner that night and I, and I even said to myself there's no way i'm going to dinner and this guy's gonna think i just blew him off just because i was never going to dinner or whatever and he came up and he saw me wincing in pain and he said Are you okay i said yeah man i just got this major pain in my stomach i don't know what it is and i'm calling the races this is so it's saturday and sunday i call saturday i can't go to the bathroom sunday morning i call doctor again i go doc i don't know what to do i just ate some raisins he goes don't eat raisins go get some white yogurt i get some white yogurt I said, if I don't go to the bathroom today, I don't know if I can come in, man. and, And he said, just have some white yogurt. Have some white yogurt. Could barely go anything to the bathroom. Came to work that day. Fought my way through the whole day. And late in the afternoon, there was there was no chance I was memorizing any fields. I was in a daze up there. I mean, I was there was one race that the eight horse was gray. If you ever go look at the past, at the replays of that day, this eight was was like restless in the gate. It was the last horse to load in a turf race. I like like almost went out the window. I was in so much pain just holding my side. And I was happy he delayed the start so I could at least call the race. But I think the next race are the following. The five and the nine are battling it out. I don't remember who they are, but I confused them and In deep stretch, very deep stretch, I realized what had happened and I corrected the call. And and normally, I'm a perfectionist and mistakes like that are unacceptable, obviously. And normally, something like that would put me in a deep, deep fog. And I remember sitting down and I I, I didn't even care that that happened. And the phone rings and it's the doctor. And he goes, hey, I just heard that call. You're coming with me today to the hospital. Because I'd blown him off the day before. He goes... At the end of the day, you're coming with me, and you're you're, you're going to come to the hospital. You understand? I said yes, sir. He says I got to check something out with you. You're not right. So the day ends at Monmouth. There's a race at Saratoga. For some reason, I want to say Edgar Prado was on some heavy, heavy favorite in a short field, and there was an inquiry. And I did not bet the race. I wasn't involved in the race. But I was wondering whether the show plungers were going to go down with a DQ. And so I'm actually just sitting there waiting for the verdict just because. And again, I didn't have an interest in the race. I don't even remember who it was. It was a short field, though. And I was just waiting for that. And then that thing happened. And I just, you know, kind of like dilly-dallied and went downstairs. And when I got to the bottom elevator, the door opens. And it's the nurse saying, what are you doing? Doc is waiting for you in his car. So I follow him to the hospital. And he takes me uh to uh jersey shore medical center gets me all set up and they do a a scan you know i have to drink that nasty stuff and they do a scan and it's it's weird because i don't like hospitals who does but i really don't like hospitals or those kind of places i was so calm during the whole process he told me later he gave me morphine (laughs) so i guess that's why i was so calm but i I wasn't even phased by the whole thing and then the next morning he called me and he goes hey i got good news and bad news the good news uh, the bad news is you're gonna have to have a little surgery the good news is uh, I told the doctor not to give you a bag. I go, what? What are you talking about? So we had this conversation. He explained to me there's a problem and this and that. And then the surgeon comes in and, and he tells me the situation. And I'm saying, doc, listen, I appreciate what you're doing. My doctors are in California. I'm going to need to go back home. And da, 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 da. And I remember like the guys like leaning over, you know, like when you're laying in the bed, hopefully you've never laid in a hospital bed, but you're laying in the bed and the guy's like leaning over you. And he's basically looking at me and talking, going on and on. And at a certain point, it was like one of those movies where there's a scene where it's just like music and you don't even know what's happening. It's just kind of like all in slow motion. This guy's mouth is moving. I don't hear a word he's saying, but I do know one thing. He's about to cut me right open. And I realized that there's no way out of this. Like, I'm trapped. And uh, and I said to him, please, Doc, no bags, for heaven's sakes. And uh, we went downstairs. Tom Cassidy and his lovely wife Audrey came to to be with me, which I will appreciate forever. And uh, I had five and a half hour emergency surgery, and it was a very complex one. Evidently, um, I don't know what happened in there, but there were some issues um, as they were working on it. And um, the the second doctor, Doctor Snepar, my main guy was uh, Eugene Zerkovsky. I like to give name drops because these guys saved me, so they deserve it. But Doctor Snepar was like the the right hand man, the assistant, and a over a year later, he was at Mammoth one day drinking a beer and he he had he had told me, he says, Frank, your surgery was one that is kind of like a ch- career changer and this and that and the other it was very complex. I go, what was it? And he said, one day I'll tell you over a drink. Well, he comes to the booth one day with his hat on backwards, a beer in his hand and some friends. I'm like, Doc, you always wanted to tell me this thing. He goes, imagine two big guys elbow deep inside of you trying to pull that tumor out. <laughs> and I just want that was the end of that story. I didn't need to hear much more else about that. But they got. They got out the emergency part. They couldn't do a colonoscopy to see what was happening. They knew there was that. They didn't know if there was any more um, because they couldn't do the colonoscopy. And they said in six weeks, I do a colonoscopy. Fast forward after that very tough thing that I went through. Six weeks later, I do a colonoscopy. I don't really know what's going on. I can't even picture there's any other problems. Um, I always thought that thing was cancer for some reason. They tried to say, we don't know this and that. I'm like, I know what that is. But when the when i came to the guy who had done my colonoscopy i walk into the office i'd even texted everyone like hey everything seems cool this and that boom i go and see the guy he has this look on his face he goes hey is there a history of this in your family i'm like doc what are you saying is there bad news here and and he said that there was more in the sigmoid which is down low and we're going to need to do another surgery and he like locked me up for another 10 days from now another surgery and from there, I ended up calling Mattress Mac, and he was the great guy that he always is. Flew me to Houston, brought me to MD Anderson, had me meet with the top guys, and get me some genetic testing done. And um, and then later on, by uh, some amazing miracles, I ended up um, getting hooked up with a, a gentleman who's a big Mammoth part. He's an owner and a, a player and a doctor, and he knows a guy who's renowned in colorectal surgery, and he's located at uh, Memorial Sloan in New York and somehow my stubbornness stopped me from getting a second opinion and I went there and I could tell you that when Songbird and Beholder hit the wire in that breeder's cup epic battle I was in the and I didn't watch it live I just was reading it on Twitter I was in the TSA line coming back from uh New Jersey from New York to uh California after getting a second opinion and meeting with Dr. Pady and after that meeting I decided I was going to have him do my second surgery which he did and then I was uh, I was told it's stage three because of the number of tumors that were there, but we uh attacked it with some chemotherapy, chemotherapy pills and the infusions for six months. And uh, you know, today we're at four years cancer free and very grateful and, and just uh you know, very, very humble and understanding that every day is a holiday and that um, I'm very, very fortunate to have had the care, the timing, the situation, and to be at that place at that time with those doctors to take care of me. So, uh, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty heavy duty stuff, man.
0: Yeah, man. I, you know, i tell you what, it's, uh, you know, I, I fall in that category, kind of being scared to go to the doctor. Like, I it's funny. Cause like, if you didn't find out you would have died, but I have this stupid idea in my brain that I don't want to know, <laughs> which <laughs>
1: Believe me, I had that idea. It's a very stupid idea. It's just, you want to know. And I'll yeah. tell you why you want to know. God forbid, you want to be able to, that's why I tell everyone, man. When you're getting near 50, you get a colonoscopy. I mean, the word colonoscopy, there's not a chance I was ever going for a colonoscopy. I I wasn't 50 yet, but there is no chance. I was like, hey, colonoscopy time, zero. So I can understand people blowing that right off immediately. But I could tell you that whole system, my philosophies on medicine are Beyond flawed, They're utter nonsense. I've always said that i don't want if I have a headache, I don't want to take a Tylenol because I don't want my body to think I now need Tylenol. stuff like this is pure stupidity and ridiculous theories that do not uh do, you know they don't they don't have any any value so uh, I would say if you're a male listening to this, the best thing you can hear is get a colonoscopy and and now it's happening with younger people and they're, just do it it's not let me say this for a guy who does never want to go. That process is, I mean, it's the night before that's not fun because you got to clean your system out. It's not an enjoyable experience, but guess what? Go do it and it might save your life and it might help your family and it might do a lot of things for you. So I cannot say that strongly enough.
0: Well, I, 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 I'm glad you're here. You know, Thanks, man. That's, Thanks, that's, you that's the important part. And, uh, and uh, I'm really thankful because if that wouldn't have gone well, I would have never learned about uh, what it
1: was to
0: to try to hit a to-go par.
1: you got to get to-go pars in your life, man.
0: And uh, it's it's one of my favorite things in the world to do now, but I'll let you explain what a to-go par is. A to-go and, par? Do and you, you remember how you – you, you tell what it is. If you remember when you told me, that's a funny I'm story. I, tell, I, I,
1: I told you at a place called Goodies On Demand, which I don't even think if it exists – I don't even think Goodies On Demand exists anymore. I'm not positive, but um, I, I told you about to-go pars with uh, Michelle from the NTRA, right? She was there. And uh, there were some other people uh, at the Encore in Las Vegas, Nevada. But the to-go par, which, let me just say this, and there's no one more appropriate to make this statement. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call <laughs> 1-800-522-4700. Always wager responsibly. Know when to stop before you start. I can give you exhibits a through z times 50 as to why that is true that the one dollar pick three is the way to go at all times or pick four or pick five multiple denominations cause multiple headaches but a to-go par is a very important thing if you're going to it's changing now because sports betting is not just with your man around the corner at the pizza joint or the liquor store or any of that anymore it's becoming legal rightfully so and it's much more available uh, so it's not as relevant. But the Tagopar started what, with what was called the Outlaw Line, created by none other than John Avello, race book legend, sports book legend, who was being paid handsomely for his long tenure in those arenas. But when he was at Bally's, he was the first guy to put up the next day's lines, so particularly in baseball. Uh, I have been referred to during certain streaks as Frankie Bases. I want to let you know, so don't steal my domain, FrankieBases.com. Um, the, the, the the to-go par is if you're leaving Vegas or now you're probably leaving any state and, and you want a to-go par, you can make that play and leave, either on the later games that day or the next day's um, games, and it, it might get you a return trip to where you want to go. I've had some great to-go parts. I've had some miserable to-go parts, but, uh, for some reason, when I think of the to-go part, it brings a smile because it does, uh, it can ignite life when you think, uh, when you think you're done.
0: So, I mean, I think it's at least worth mentioning that you have that number memorized. Have you, have you, uh, how has your relationship been with, uh, with gambling? I, I, to be straight up, like I've had, I had to, uh, I had to learn a lot of hard lessons early trying to figure out how to do this in a responsible way. Uh,
1: Yeah. I mean, the true answer to that, and we're on candid, this is candid, this is candid podcast, correct? I should never,
0: uh, yeah. You can go Uh, go wherever you want with this one.
1: Yeah. I I should never, ever be wagering on anything at any time. I've wagered enough for 800 lifetimes. I've had the highest of highs, the biggest of wins and some crushing defeats that uh, have, have, you know, Crossed the line there's an, my buddy and my i got my buddy brian in florida he, he his favorite line to me he used to say do you think you crossed that invisible line that invisible line was crossed long ago and it's not a healthy one and and um it's 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 very interesting considering my profession and what i do and and uh i'm glad i've, I've made bets and went to the track as a kid with my dad so much because it's given me the opportunity to enjoy something so much in what i do but you know, the the thing is, look, I mean, you had 40000 on Monomoy Girl, my friend, okay? That's a lot of cash. Uh, I'm sick because I now know that you've bet more on a horse than I have. So who am I, right? Um, but uh, look, it, it's a very, very dangerous thing. And unfortunately, it comes down to, uh, there, there are a lot of issues. I, I won't get into the deepness of it all, but it's uh, it, it can be very dangerous and it can be very destructive and it can be very fun. But, you know, you, you got to play within your limits and within your boundaries. And unfortunately, that is something I do not understand. And I don't think – like I think once you get to – it's very hard for me to picture, um, you know, betting in a way that isn't on the edge because it's – you know, once you're there, man, it's a feeling you cannot explain. And so it's uh, – you know, I, I don't speak against it because I believe – there is nothing wrong with betting. And I believe that it's fun for most people, almost everybody. But, you know, there's that brochure you've seen in the casino, <laughs> When the Fun Stops. I've quoted that <laughs> brochure. You've seen that brochure, right? Yeah. Oh, my I God, mean, yeah. even whoever did the color scheme of that thing, I mean, it looks despondent when you're about to pick that thing up, man. It's like this burnt orange, you know, Cardiff Stud Farm colors on the outside or something. But <laughs> just, you know what I mean? It's like, um, yeah, man. It's, uh, you know the
0: thing about it is that I the, the biggest issue that I ran into is that um, you know I never really got into like uh just like game of chance stuff like you know sure. I, you know I'm not like a guy who's who's you know going to, to write a check at the casino so I can play roulette right but one time one the with the five
1: and seventeen I got you one, one time
0: um but one of the things that I did have to figure out is that once you start when you start kind of dabbling in a game of skill. There's an issue because you start to believe in yourself. You start to believe in the information that you've accumulated over time, the the skill that you feel like you've developed. And the other thing, the worst thing that can happen to any of us is that in those moments where you are irresponsible and chase, when you've bailed yourself out, then you always see that as an option of a way to kind of get, to get past it. And of course. the biggest issue that I ever ran into in my life is when I started playing, I, when I started playing seriously, I had that big pop at the Belmont. And then I, I, so I had a lot of money, but I didn't, I wasn't good yet. I, I, you know, I was good that day, but I wasn't good in general. And so I just kind of kept, I just, I just kind of was playing outside of my means. And when you play outside your means is when you get into situations where you start chasing, because it's easier for you to try to win back, what you shouldn't have lost than it is to face the problem that you lost it. Because if you lost 10 and you don't got 10, what's the difference between being down 10 and 20, both of them, you're screwed. Right. And that was a problem. That was a, that was something that I had to learn like younger when I was younger is I had to, you know, I I had to like take a step back and not bet as much, you know um, so that I didn't get myself in this position.
1: Correct first of all that 10 versus 20 is an absolutely flawed mentality that I have shared with you and and when if you're really honest with yourself you realize that's twice the trouble and twice the amount you're going to have to get back so i uh, believe me i'm never going to preach to you that you're coming with nonsense but that is utter nonsense because
0: oh no no i know it's not you nonsense. need to
1: hit the brakes of course but but, yeah, it's but
0: the problem is i think for a lot of people at least for me in those situations where it's like okay if if this 10 is a problem for me and I have to like face how I'm going to solve this problem, then the, whatever, if I have to, you know, if I have to holler at my dad or hit up a friend or whatever it is, it, it, that line of embarrassment and, 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 you know, Kind of disappointment and all that, like you 're going to have to cross it, so if you 're going to cross it for ten, cross it for fifteen that 's the stupid mindset I had
1: I understand oh, and believe that, me don 't think that, i don 't understand it i 've endorsed too. it i 've written books on it, but but i 'm just saying it 's just no good, but yes i I totally get what you 're saying and and look I, I want to talk about that because I think that when there are people that are legitimately trying to win or grind or use their skill set. And, you know, like horse racing is a perfect example where every day on Twitter, everyone's just crying about the takeout. You need to do this. You need all the – if you notice, all the takeout is going to change the world, people are, you know – pretty pretty sharp people like in general gambling doesn't have gambling is designed for the most part for the house right and then the and so like one percentage point in takeout is going to help the people that are grinding and getting rebates and doing this and doing that it's going to help everyone else too but the average masses don't care whether the win percentage is 17 or 19 the the you know what i mean they're not thinking about that you need to think about that in order to be sharp and be successful. So I commend those people that are looking for those, um, you know, discounted rates and so on and so forth, because it's like shopping. Why not buy something, you know, on Amazon when you can get it for cheaper or whatever. Um, so you Jonathan in trying to, you know, now, you know, the game, you know what you need to do to try to win. You got to pick your spots, all that. There are, I believe firmly that there are opportunities to earn and to make money and to do things successfully betting horses. However, if you're betting horses, sweating out games, wondering about when you're going to play blackjack, you know, wondering, you know, if you're going to be able to roll 18 fours before a seven on a dice table, wondering if red's going to be on fire, you can't, you're done, you're finished. So, you know, the key is to not get to a point where you're irresponsible. And if, and, and, you know, once let's put it this way, if there's anything you've ever done that you said, I quit that at one point, there's probably an issue behind it. There's no, no one who's just going to the track and just having a good time or going to the casinos and going to Vegas, and having a, they don't say I'm quitting unless there was a reason to quit. Correct. Do you agree with that?
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Okay. So, you know, once you've crossed that invisible line, it, it, it can become A very you know dangerous area whether it's anything that's addictive or 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 pleasure you know something that pleases you indulgent maybe is the right word um so you know i've had moments i've had long stretches of time um on on numerous occasions where i didn't make a bet on anything including from 2011 to 2014 37 months i didn't you know Put a dollar on a lottery ticket. Zero. And I'll tell you this, I never thought I would ever do it again. And it was because the fun had stopped. I even said one of the funny lines that I shared with a buddy of mine. Um, in fact, I told this to Todd Shrupp. I said, Betting on basketball has got to be the most punishing thing there is ever. Anyone winning in basketball, I, I I forget about players. I want their autograph basketball is as ridiculous as it gets and i said to him this is what i said to him sometime in like 2012 we were working together um and i said the sound of squeaking sneakers makes me sick to this day just from the experiences i've had on the basketball court um meaningless threes all this other stuff you know blowing 23 point leads the you know just i mean the aggravation the looks I mean, I have so many resentments to so many famous athletes that I feel bad. <laughs> I really do, because I wouldn't want to have to tell them some of the thoughts I've had about them and their abilities due to something that has happened along the way. Um, I know you're friends with Richard Lewis. I'll tell you, man, that man was, I, I love that guy, man. Smooth as silk from three. Love that guy. Like, you don't want to be against him when the money's down. I'm telling you this genuinely, and believe me, if we started naming players, I'd have some harsh comments, but that guy, I smile when I think about him because that guy's a man and he's a winner. And uh, here's the thing, what what sports betting did, and believe me, when I talk about betting that's caused me problems, I would say if it wasn't for sports betting, there would have never really been a problem in my opinion. Sports betting was was something that I wish I never learned and something my dad told me to never get involved with at a young age. But I have opinions. And you know what's crazy as I sit here right now talking to you I'm going to tell you something that I'm going to preface it by saying it's utter nonsense. I really believe that I am a master line reader. That I don't even need to know who the players are, I can see the line and understand what to do. But the problem is, I'm not a grinder. So, for me, if I'm hitting 75%, it's not enough, man. It's got to be 100% because I got to sweep them with the to go par 6 and 0. Oh, 5 and 1 ain't going to cut it. So, but I mean, I think that I actually know something, which is actually anyone who would know the real details of me listening to that would either laugh or cry hearing that sentence. But when it comes to sports, I sometimes think I can see things that are so obvious. And uh, because the line is telling you, you know, it's, it's, it's answering the question for you in advance because the line makers could solve the world's problems. I mean, how many – even in the last few weeks in the NFL, have you seen some of these endings? I mean, they're all coming down to the end. I mean, it's almost surreal what takes place in these games, but they're just too good. Look, 11 is greater than 10, as TQ tells me so many times. Um, it really is, and it adds up against you. But I think my knowledge of horse racing, particularly spotting horses on the track pre-race, I'd put myself up against anybody, and I've never... I've ridden a horse one time, um, and I rode ponies at um, Griffith Park. But I I am very proficient at spotting things in the post parade, and I think it helps me in my work because I can see who's got game day on and who doesn't. And sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong, but I, I would... Believe me, let's put it this way. I would think someone would want my opinion on that. That's something where I can help them. As far as handicapping and all this other stuff... I'm not gonna say I'm some unbelievable handicapper. I pay attention and you know I'm watching closely and I'm trying to give you a good idea. And I I feel that my work on TVG and my work at the seminars now at Santa Anita um reflects that I watch replays, I pay attention, and you know, I do the necessary homework. Um and and you know, like if I'm watching six high-definition screens of horse racing and I'm calm and not getting agitated and in chase mode or this or that i believe i could hold my own with any number of takeout but the problem is discipline and once you know you know you know what i would say if i was going to tell here's what i would say to people if they're going to bet recreationally because if you're ever going to bet more than you afford i'm going to beg you to never bet again but if you're betting recreationally i will give you a couple of pieces of sound advice on this jk plus one if you're betting sports and you like the favorite don't ever lay points again ever lay the money line meaning if your team wins you win. I learned that in 1990. I think it was 1990. Pretty sure it was the 49ers at New Orleans opening weekend. I was in downtown Las Vegas at the Horseshoe when the Horseshoe was the place. And I and I laid 5 with San Francisco. And I remember walking up and there was a big chubby guy and I know I'm not exactly small but this guy was a big boy, many chins. And I looked at him and and it was the days when he used to erase the board. And he erased and he put minus four and i looked at him and i go the money's coming in on new orleans isn't it And he just nodded his head up and down which made me like take it even more personally and step on the gas for the 49ers and i remember joe montana putting his arms up in the air as the winning field goal was kicked and they won by three and i got smoked like salmon and everyone else on the 49ers was laughing and dancing and those with new orleans plus the points won If you look at the NFL, pick any week and go look at the results. I don't care this year, last year, five years ago. Look what happens. The favorites win. They don't cover. And if you like the – so I would say this. If you like the favorite, take the money line. If you like the dog, you could take the points. That's good advice right there to avoid tremendous aggravation. Um, But uh, for the most part, sports is impossible. If you're winning in betting basketball, particularly the NBA, you're an absolute genius. And uh, horse racing is very, very bettable – and very beatable, but it takes, you got to pick your spots, and if you like, I love the line, I'm a great handicapper, but a bad better." but that's actually true for a lot of people, I think you got to take your shots, and you got to be, you, you got to hit with precision, you got to, here's what it is, when you're right, get paid, that's what I have to say, if you're right, get paid, and, and, you know, bet a little to win a lot, and have fun, and, uh, and that's what mm-hmm. I hope everyone out there's doing.
0: That's that's that was kind of the thing that I realized that I felt like helped turn it around for me. I think a lot of times when we fall in love with the puzzle of this game, and so that's our focus all the time is is picking winners and, and, and who's gonna run third and, and how and, and you know, who should I use in this pick four, this pick five, and and that's what everyone spends their time looking at and I shifted my attention to, you know, twenty percent of what I do is is looking at the horses and picking horses and things like that, and the other eighty percent is constructing the bets. And when I pivoted to that, it was a huge difference for me, you know. And and um, and that's that's the hard that's the hard part. Now, Frank, you mentioned your, um, you know, opinion on how they look on the racetrack, and, and I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that, sure. like kind of what some of the things you you see and think about, but also, how do you handle you know the multi race bets that are so prominent nowadays? You're not obviously going to see how they look in the third, fourth, and fifth leg.
1: I'll tell you, you know. I- my biggest flaw in betting horses has been and and it's impatience and the unwillingness to look forward and to plan these things out and I have found myself doing a lot of last minute handicapping on things like that and try and that's just stupidity man you got to take the time the day before or the morning of and and map it out and most people I know do that and I could tell you that I really don't and uh, and and I think that that is very very important but the, the key to the multi race, you have to beat some favorites along the way. And I believe it's important to take a stand. And look, how many times do you know a friend of yours that the number two will win at 18? I love that horse. Really? Who did you use there? I used the one, two, five, seven, eight, nine. But all of a sudden, when the horse wins, they love that particular horse. Take a stand, <laughs> narrow it down. Like, you know, there are, like, even the all button. Look, the all button has paid me off before, but. How about eliminating some horses that have absolutely no chance? Or if you're going to do that, how about just going against the top three choices and at least doing it that way? Because the all button is, is a waste of money. There are a lot of combinations that are going to go down and you need to preserve what you can. So to me, in the ideal scenario, and I'm doing much more handicapping now that we had the pandemic and um, I'm the seminar guest regularly, be prepared in advance look at the races, develop a strategy. And then I have a buddy of mine and I'm not saying he's ahead for the year, but I'll tell you, he hits an awful lot. And what he does, which I've never done, is he creates tickets. And this will sound, to some of your listeners are like, really dude, you've never done this? Come on, man. He'll press on his, the ones he likes more and like he'll have different levels of pressing. So let's say in the second leg, he's between the four, five and six, but he really likes the four. So he'll put more, you know, on the, on the ticket that singles the four there and then less on the five. That's smart too, because at least you're rewarded, um, you know, based on your opinion, if you're right, you're going to really clean up. If you're not a hundred percent right, you still have a chance to get there and, and be successful. Um, I, I think it's tough. I mean, there are times when I make what I like to do first move, I make a ticket out to see what it would cost. As long as come on eighteen thousand two hundred and thirty six i think this thing needs to be shaved down right it's so ridiculous um or like you do this ticket and and you gotta be kidding me this thing's eighteen hundred dollars please i mean it's got to pay ridiculous things have to happen just to break even so i would say find an opinion narrow down and then you know try to get lucky on the races where you think there are vulnerable favorites and there are plenty of vulnerable favorites in fact 67 percent of them are vulnerable and they prove it every single day and if you could beat a favorite in the first leg that's beautiful i think that's a big difference in the pick six and pick five and if there's an enormous favorite in the pick five first leg wait and go to the pick four even if you think that horse is a cinch the pick four might pay more than the pick five even at bigger tracks
0: yeah no I, i like that i like that a lot um I do. I like that a lot. The other thing I've done, I've done a couple of times, not very often, but sometimes just depending on the scenario is I'll single in the last leg. Even if I don't love the horse, I'll single the one I like the most because if I can get alive to that horse for 18,000, then I can have some, I can make some decisions on what I want to do with some of the other ones. You know um, you, you know, you can't do that all the time, but you know, you, cause you'll end up just kind of in a bad situation, but it's at least something
1: no, to consider. I, I, I totally, uh, I see that. It's tough because it, it makes it easier to get alive and then all of a sudden now you're in that vulnerable spot. I also by the way, another thing I would say I've noticed over the years, the favorite in the last race for those of you just betting a race terrible odds the the, the chalk gets chalkier and and I, I just watch the lot la- any track New York, California, Kentucky, whatever. Watch the last couple of minutes when there's a horse like two to one or nine to five. And like the next choice is up there, four or five, six. Watch what starts happening. Before you know it, that nine to five is six to five. And by the time the race goes, you're looking at even money on a horse that you were thinking about a two to one. It's a huge difference in there. And, And that's the thing also, you know, I used to bet heads up with a guy in high school and he was very sharp and he would make his own morning line. This is way back. I mean, we're talking about the, you know, early 80s. But I wanted to challenge him because I felt I was a better handicapper. But it seemed like he always had the odds advantage over me. It wasn't even close. And so if, he, if we're betting a hundred bucks head to head, he's got a giant edge. One of my favorite victories against him, I had a horse named Embolden, which there's a new Embolden now that Stidham trains. This is way back when Steve Ippolito trained this one. Um, part of the whole Peter Urton family, amazingly. And he had a horse named Record Catch. Record catch was ridden by The Shoe, and Bolden was ridden by Luis Ortega. I think record catch was like four to five or even money. My horse was three to one, and I nailed him late, and it was a great call, because those are the days I used to listen to KNX to listen to the stretch calls, and uh, I still remember Trevor's call of that race, and and Bolden nailed him, and it was a good thing, but guess what? I should have gotten three to one. I got even money, and that guy got even money on a four to five shot, but he didn't need to win; he just needed to beat one horse. So that guy was schooling me, and I paid the price for it. But at least he was prepared in advance to know what price he wanted, what he was trying to accomplish, and uh, as a result, he was you know scraping money right out of my allowance into his pocket. <laughs>
0: he, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Trevor Denman and and uh, and uh, you know it, it's been well documented what he means to you. You said it in the beginning of the show as well. Uh, he has two that two kind of calls that I love and I wanted to see if you had a preference. And um the first one is uh, they would need to sprout wings. Sure. Which is magnificent. Uh I think uh Sydney's Candy, I want to say, got it one time, which was one of my favorite horses for some weird reason. And then the other one is uh out here moving like a winner.
1: I love I love that one.
0: Is that's the that is that your favorite? Do you like that one more than you Need to Sprout Wings?
1: Uh, yes, I do like moving like a winner. There's just something about it, especially if you have that horse and he's out there moving out here moving like a winner. It's a beautiful call to get. Uh, I like the express train call. Um, I, the ultimate call for the greats of all time under Trevor's, you know, time frame of calling races. And he he's delivered, I would say less than 10 of them in his time. Poetry in motion. When he comes with poetry in motion or, or when he has delivered poetry in motion in a race call, you know you're dealing with an absolute superstar that has a gorgeous stride and is incredibly talented. And so uh, I've actually talked to Trevor and given him a little countdown of some of his poetry in motions over the years, and, and he, was, he was shocked at how many of them I knew. But I studied the guy forever and listened to him forever. And, um, you know, I feel like I've learned, I know what he looks for in a race and I am now doing the same thing in his booth many years later. And I'm trying my best to on a daily basis, honor the greatness of the Santa Anita announcers booth and, and and who has been in there and what the fans have come to expect. And it's a tall order and it's a stressful order, but it's, uh, when I go in there, That's all that matters. And I'm, I'm, I'm at peace more in that booth than I am. I'm not a very peaceful guy, unfortunately, but when I'm in that booth, there's, it's just me and the horses for the most part. And that's the way I like to keep it.
0: Frank Trevor. And I don't know if this is a forever thing for Trevor, but towards the end of his career, uh, well, not the end of his career, but towards the end, I I know he's taking a break right now or whatever, but um, what he, he, didn't call fractions and, and I, it doesn't bother me as a horse player. Cause I, I can see the fractions on the screen and I don't need him to tell them to me. Um, do you call fractions?
1: I do not. I do it. I've only done it in New York when I have filled in, in New York and I did it out of respect for the racing fans. I'm very much against that. Um, it's just not, you know, I grew up in Southern California, listening to race calls. Uh, Trevor's philosophy on that is if you want the fractions, they're right on the screen for you. If you're calling the race and you're giving the fractions, it means you're looking away from the horses at that point in time. And if you are a, you know, true professional and watch races for a living, one should be able to get an idea of how the pace is developing. Um, That said, there are a large number of fans that want to hear those fractions. But I can tell you this, when I went to Monmouth Park, I don't think, maybe one person one time said to me, hey, what about fractions? And they were called there forever. For whatever reason, I felt when I went to Aqueduct and did that fill-in work and worked with John Embry, and I asked John, I said, John, I really don't do fractions, but I feel like in New York, I'm gonna just, you know, he goes, Frank, just do what makes you comfortable because ultimately it's more important to be accurate than to, you know, come with the fancy schmancy. I think the fractions gives, the the fractions will allow the race caller a, a, an opportunity to reset the race, to buy some time, to say something other than, you know, horse names. There is something to be said for the fractions. I'm not like totally against it, but there are some things like I think about a Calder race course, like in their days, three quarters and 115 and four. Does it really matter if the next call was three quarters and 117 and one? Like, what's the difference? So there are times in a sprint when you got a real fast horse going 21 flat. I've had horses like that doing that, um, and, and, I, and I thought to myself, man, I wish I saw that fraction. It would give me a better perspective of what's going on. But I'm the same guy who believes I'd much rather see my horse go 21 and 2 in front by two lengths than 22 and 1 head and head, three across the track, the same horse. So I have different ways of watching that situation unfold than maybe what one might think would happen looking at the number on the board i believe speed is a weapon and it should be used to fight off the competition and to break their heart early and if i have a speed horse go to the front and just let it rip and and defeat your competition before the 16th pull don't try to just hold on or in a big marathon race like you know you're slowing it down use your speed maybe you'll go wire to wire here Like, don't forget, if you're going so slow, the closer is only two lengths behind you instead of eight. So there's a lot to be said for that. Every race develops differently. Um, I take pride in my ability to read a race as it's unfolding. And I try my best to deliver my calls to try to describe and also anticipate what's happening in Trevor Demon fashion. But I realize I'm not Trevor Demon, so I have to be very careful. So every day my mantra or theme is don't. Get too opinionated, tell the people what you see. That was Trevor's line to me. He says, "Frank, go in there, open your eyes, and tell the people what you see." And that's what I'm trying to do every day. And I, I'm I'm really feeling as confident in what I'm doing as I ever have. And so, a lot of the nervousness is starting to fade away as I just go in and just try to take care of business. But still, it requires hard work. It requires dedication. It requires concentration and memorization and a lot of things. But the fractions are highly overrated.
0: Now, you know, I, th- I think we, we would both agree that, that the two greatest race callers that at least of our generation, well, my, you know, a little bit younger than you, but our generation, for me, it's definitely Trevor and, and, and Tom Durkin. Um, what things do you think that they kind of had in common that you feel like is is, uh, is is an important part of being considered like an all-time great?
1: incredible voices in both circumstances um you know uh, presence about them authority vocabulary Uh, those are the things that they had in common i think their styles extremely different i have no problem if a guy wants to tell me tom durkin is the greatest and it was his favorite or her favorite because tom is an absolute legend great voice amazing description like his call of You know, real quiet and victory gallop. I mean, it's just seamless. A picture is worth a thousand words. That photo is worth five million dollars. Like, he knew he was going to say that, but the opportunity had to present itself for that to be delivered. And the way he delivered it, it didn't look like he was taking out a a post it note and reading it. And so, you know, contrived calls are very dangerous. If you start messing up sentences that you wrote to yourself, I mean, I'm not going to have too much sympathy. Please. You know, so I would say, you know, Tom's Breeders' Cups and Tom's work, day-to-day, great voice. Um, I mean, what an icon. I I grew up with Trevor Demon, and to me, there's just no one can ever compare to him. It's not going to happen. And, you know, when when he came to Southern California, I I was not on board immediately. I started imitating his voice, and it wasn't in a flattering way at the beginning. But real quick, I realized that this guy – can see a race like no one I've ever, I've ever seen, and uh, and I would just sit in the grandstand and marvel, watching the things develop that he would anticipate, and just the way he would describe it, and the way that he would, you know what Trevor did for me, J, jk He educated me, on the replay show at Santa Anita that played on Channel 56, at the end of every race he would give you a quick sentence or two about the race, about what he saw about what developed and about what to expect in the future. And to me, I just used to just sit there and listen for every word because he was teaching me something. He would show why this happened or you know how this horse is developing or how good this horse was. And I, I wanted to use that knowledge, of course, to make some money at the windows, but it, it really made me a genuine fan and lover of the sport. And, uh, and And I really believe that he played a huge role in doing that for me, even though, by the time he got here, I was fully entrenched in racing because I was 16 at the time, so I was very much into it already, but he took it to an entirely different level.
0: How how important do you think it was? I mean, obviously, you respect everything else about him, but how important do you think his accent was um, in kind of where his likability and, and people kind of being, you know, gravitating towards his calls?
1: When he first got here, I think people were a little bit annoyed with his accent, but it was different. And there is something about a classy international accent that certainly is appealing. Um, and, and, and I believe that, that race callers and commentators have benefited from having that on their side. But you can't have an accent with no depth Trevor's a brilliant guy. He's a big reader. He is extremely knowledgeable about the world and things that, and same with Durkin. I know he's a very, very, very smart guy, but but Trevor's voice, he actually went to a voice coach and his voice transformed. If you go listen to his calls of, say, precisionist, which would be you know, going to the mid 80s, 84, 85, and then start hearing him, a few years later, for Sunday Silence, Easy Goer, in the Preakness, there's a noticeable change in his voice, and and it, it I think that that change took place around eighty nine ninety in that time frame. It started. It, it, I don't know, maybe eighty eight. Trying to think of races and what he sounded like, but it, it was it was a transformation, and his voice is powerful. And what's interesting is in visiting him in the booth, and he let me sit and watch a race with him once, which I didn't want to like be that guy to just grind him out and say, can I please sit here? But he was so kind and let me do it. What amazed me is that his voice, which comes out so crystal clear and powerful over the public address system, that his it, 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 it's really just a powerful voice because he's not yelling. He's not really raising his voice hard. And and he just has it. It's He has the ability to raise it up for those moments. And I remember Baffert telling me once when he talked about Trevor's greatness that, what, where Trevor was a difference maker is coming to the quarter pole because that's where the excitement starts. That's where the winner is about to be um, unveiled. And and he would have your heart pumping, you know, with excitement, waiting to, to you know, you're waiting for the Trevor call. Who's going to get the call? Who's going to get the not doing enough? Who's going to get the let's see call, you know, and, and, and those type of things. I mean, he just could pick them out and spot them earlier. Uh, Trevor's way faster uh, than anyone I've ever uh, watched call a race because of his ability to identify the moves. There are others who are very good at spotting the move, but Tom's Tom Durkin's style was never trying to be like, you know, he wasn't in a speed contest. He was there to put on a show, and what a showman. Love that guy. I mean, Tom is just such a... You know, I got one text from Tom Durkin in my life, man. It was after the Arkansas Derby in twenty fifteen the next day I got a text from him. two words "Good call." I mean, what a great text like I was so happy to get that text because you know it was his way of acknowledging good job and uh and and that meant a lot to me and and you know i, I that that could arguably be if not my best, certainly in the top three best calls I've ever delivered. so it was pretty cool to hear from Durkin on that, but yeah, I, I agree. You know, there's always the East Coast, West Coast situation. So automatically people are going to say that Trevor can't call a race, Zenyatta can't run, and that Easy Goro was better. I understand all that. But, you know, the other side would be, you know, the the fans booed when they introduced Tom Durkin at the Breeders' Cup in 86 because they were so spoiled by Trevor. Trevor had, you know, vaulted to the top. And, you know, back then NBC was using him very smartly to be a part of the broadcast team because you could – in the race call, you can't get the incredible depth that he can offer you in looking at a race. And and on those broadcasts, he gave the fans an opportunity to enjoy his brilliance. And, and you know, and it's a lot wider than just the race.
0: You really seem to be a, kind of a student of the voice, of, of like the voices and and uh and, and and it reminds me obviously and, and I'm not gonna do the this the typical thing you do when you come you, see when the you people ask you to yeah dance <laughs> dance Frank dance um but when did you start with the impressions was that something that just kind of came along with uh what was first the impressions or wanting to be a, a race caller and, and and tell me a little bit about when you found out you could do that and why you started doing it
1: I started imitating voices. I've always said my first one was Tom Jones at about age five singing Delilah because that song was always on in our house and Engelbert Humperdinck and Tom Jones. I mean, it's unfortunate, but I did have to endure a lot of that as a youngster in the background. Um, But I wasn't in charge of the music selection back then. So I just learned how to imitate at a very, very young age. And it would even just be little sounds or little things. And I don't know how it developed. I really don't. But I know that my brother and I we lived on Oakhurst Drive. We lived at 236 South Oakhurst Drive at I could tell you what we were there for sure when Seattle slough got smoked in the Gold Cup. Um excuse me, in the Swap Stakes at um at Hollywood Park. Um by Joe Tobin because I was listening to the great Harry Henson who also had a perfect voice, nice gravelly voice. But um I, we we lived about two doors down, or th- one, two, or three doors down from a gentleman named Dawes Butler, who was a legendary um, voice actor, who did the voices of Captain Crunch, Elroy Jetson, Wally Gator, Huckleberry Hound, Snagglepuss, uh, and so many y- Yogi Bear, Boo Boo, so many different guys and and characters, and. I just found out recently, I can't believe I never knew how this happened. I asked my brother, how did you even find, because my brother found it. My brother's three years older than me. And he took me over there and we were watching this old man, you know, like leaning into a microphone, doing all these voices. We couldn't even believe it. My brother was grinding him to the ground every day, asking him for a new cassette tape for him and his girlfriend, a tape for me, this and that. But anyway, I don't know if perhaps a light went off when I saw that guy do that, I don't know. I, I can't like, I, I, it would be the perfect story to say I saw Doz Butler and I started doing voices, but it's not what happened. I just had that ability. We went to the track often and I started imitating track announcers along the way, along with many other people. And I think it's, it's something I've really, there's no excuse that I, let's put it this way. I should have been able to bet whatever I want to bet forever based upon the voices the the, the skill that I was given to do this because I've been able to imitate so many different things that if I focused on the right people and you know spent more time at it it I've let's put it this way in the horse racing world I believe I've done the best possible job imitating voices I'm not going to say entertaining people Larry Letterman's in another galaxy on that but just with the accurate impersonations of track announcers but major underachievement in the world of not capitalizing on that skill to do that. So uh, that's, yeah, it's very weak that I haven't done a lot of work in voiceover and all that. Just, just a lot. I could have had a lot more to go pars that lost the last leg. More routing numbers. Love the routing number.
0: Now, did you, can you, do you have to, uh, and maybe you don't even know the way you do it, but do you just hear it over and over again and then you can do it, or do you have to just kind of practice with it and play with it and and then you can kind of almost hear yourself how do you how did you kind of how do you figure out if you got one or not?
1: It's a process and and it, it is a process you need something unique in the voice, and one of the keys to duplicating the voice is to be able to see the way the mouth moves in making that noise. So if I could see someone talking and hear what is coming out, it will help me develop that sound. And there are times when I can get some real obscure impressions down. And it's, it's usually because there's just something very different about that person's delivery or what they say or how they say it. And, uh, I just have that ability. I can't, I I wish I could explain it better. I just don't, I don't know, but I'm I'm good at it, man. I'm good at it for sure. And there are people that I know it, but I can't duplicate it, but I know what I'm, I know what's coming and I know what I would do to try to like, I know I I have the formula. I just can't make the sound, but I know what it is. And that, that drives me crazy when, when I can't quite knock it out, but I've got, I've gotten some impressions down so well of people that nobody knows. So who cares, but it's still fun.
0: Um, I have heard you do a Greg Wolf and it made me think uh, about um, your time at TVG. And um, this was obviously way before I, I had had the chance to meet you,
1: but. Did you like you me? Didn't... Don't lie to me, man. Did you like me or say who is yeah,
0: this guy? No, yeah, I did. I swear. I absolutely did. I could tell that you got down. I like people that get down. If I know that you're. If I'm looking, seeing someone, I say that guy bets, I have so much more, um, like love for them. If I, if I see someone, I'm like, ah, this fraud, he's not even betting. Then I get a little bit more judgmental of those people. No, but I knew you bet. Um, but I, I, I never really knew. And to be honest, even though I know a lot of people involved, obviously I know Tony Alavado and I know Greg Wolf, I really don't know what happened with that time that you walked off. Were you really mad? Was that real? Was that staged? What happened with the walk-off, and if people don't know what I'm talking about, maybe you can set it up a little bit.
1: So I was working, I worked a lot of shifts. I started TVG in 2007, and uh, that was a Bob Baffert break. He made the call and got me in there to at least have a shot. He said, this guy's funny, put him on the air, and so Tony gave me a shot, and I don't remember what day it was or how long, how far along in my working there that this took place, but I do remember all the details about it. And I think you could actually find it. In fact, I'm going to look here and see if... if
0: No, I, saw, if I found fact... it on YouTube. I actually and Yeah, it. Frank
1: M. Yeah. Walks Off, you saw that? Yeah. Yeah. Is, is that what it's under? Frank M. Walks Off, right? Yep, 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 absolutely. All right. Yeah, I was just about to do that. All right, so here's the deal. I'm on the air. There's a horse named Developing Story. Um, and by the way, I've actually now, I think seen and called Developing Stories uh, babies and a winner, and it made me smile. Um, because I said, I know that name. And then boom, it reminded me of this thing. So I'm on the air with Greg Wolf and Mr. B, Bob Bedecker. And so it was, it was the three man deal on the, uh, on the deal. And I said during the post parade or whatever it was, I said, this is the kind of horse (laughs) where if I was at the track and this horse lost, I'd be heading to the parking lot which was a nice way of saying every penny on this horse. How could this horse possibly lose? If I'm not positive about this, but I believe the horse finished second to Keeneland in her debut, but definitely was a Keeneland debut or, or, you know, something good and a very good effort now going in against Jersey breeds in New Jersey. I mean, she, seriously, um, she, she had to win. So I said that. And then that started the whole conversation on the set, like, well, and look in Greg's early days, he he was a little bit of a needler. I mean, to say he was had a needle in his hand would be an understatement, and I hope he would admit that. But he would give a lot of jabs along the way and and a lot of contrarian views. And like, you know, I'm like, hey man, you know, we're on the same team here, buddy. But uh and, and I think Greg is the ultimate professional. I've complimented him many times personally, and I say it this way he takes care of business. It the the, the job of hosting is not easy. And one thing about Greg and his time at TVG, well before he was into the sport the way he is now, where he's now getting involved in the windows and all that, too, in in a pretty decent way that people would never imagine, that he's into the pick fives, he's into the sheets, all this other stuff. Greg always did his homework, always did his homework and was always prepared. Like, he got the right look, got the right tone, the voice. He's got it down. But he would give me some needles. There's no doubt. He once smashed an egg on my head. I don't know if you ever remember that whole deal. Um, no, I
0: heard about him I didn't. See yeah, it.
1: I got the egg smash on my head because there was another horse there were two odds on favorites I go I'm them right now if this horse wins and that one loses you could smash an egg on my head and, and the stage manager went and got an egg and as it turned out of course the one I thought couldn't lose lost the one couldn't win won they smashed an egg on my head on TVG that was early on I think that helped me but it also probably created some people that are still jabbing me to this day <laughs> on the internet a few of those Twitter guys that are muted out anyhow I said this. So Tony Alvarado, who's who was the executive producer at that time and the top dog at TVG, had the opportunity to talk into anyone's headset where the other people wouldn't hear. And it, this is how it went down. He said to me, "Hey, if this horse loses, I would just get up and walk off the set." And I think it might have been in a commercial break where I could have answered him. I go, "Really?" Just like that. That's all I said is really, like, so no one even knows what I'm talking about because his thing is private. It's not, like, a lot of times if the if the director or the producer tells you something, other people can hear what they're saying to you. Even the people in the office and so on, or in the back, you know, studio. But this is Tony in his office. So I said, really? He goes, yeah, yeah, I think it'd be great. I said, all right. So now the race runs. Search party for de- developing story. I don't know if she was second or what her story was, but she got beat. And... Without the the best part about it, and the reason that looks so legitimate and and unscripted and unplanned, is Greg came out with the jabs, tap city or whatever it is he said. That's it, you're done. Whatever it was that he said was symbolic of what he you know like he loved it. Like down, I, I know he enjoyed the fact that that horse was nowhere. And look, when I say he enjoyed it, I'm not saying I'm not suggesting that he wanted me to lose. But it's good TV too. Remember, TV is. It's television, man. You you want to entertain a little bit. So he felt the opportunity and, and seized it and took the jab and then I just reached and I folded my paper and took the earpiece out and I walked off the set. Mr. B turned redder than a fire engine because he's a smart man and he's thinking like, don't do this to yourself. I like you Frank. I know that. Like I could see him panicking for me like, man, like Mr. B is like a cool cat. He's not going to say anything like, hey Frank, relax, sit down. But he's genuinely concerned and but if you have to go you like you know he's an old school guy if you really have to hang yourself go ahead and do it so i walk off the set i walk right into tony's office and i said how was that and all of a sudden the pollock report started going wild with that thing and the and 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 it was it was out of control what was there was like comments this and that I'm fairly certain Eric wing put something out immediately. He might've been the first person before Pollock, but it went wild and the comments started coming crazily. And, and so Tony said, wow, this is really a lot. I never expected this to happen and this and that. And so I, he, we were trying to think of what to do next. Like, what do we do here? And so then they had me call the guys and talk to them. And then they brought me back onto the thing and put me in the corner. Like I was in timeout, But none of it really worked that well. But the worst part about that, for me, isn't that to this day, and even after hearing this, some people will say, give me a break. That's BS. You know you walked off. I didn't walk off. I followed the boss's orders. But let me tell you where that didn't help me. I was supposed to be Renzo on the show Luck. That part was written for me. It's not. That's another. It's not a figment of my imagination. That's David Milch, calling me into his office, sitting down with me, along with John Parada, who would later have a very big say in me coming to San Anita, as as life would take some twists and turns that are unbelievable. But he brought me to his office to be Renzo on the show Luck, and for over two years, he would call me from time to time. And he would give me updates on the show, including when he when they got Dustin Hoffman to share the excitement of how great it was going. And at the time, so this was this would have been uh, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. In that time frame, in in that time frame, I remember I got the job offer to go to Turf Paradise, and I said to David, "Should I stay on TVG?" Or go to Turf Paradise and call the races because this was like he was going to turn me into a full-fledged actor and that was going to be my new livelihood. And he said to me, go call races, lay low. I almost prefer you not be on TV because it's going to help me as I develop your character on the show. You're going to get all the TV you want on this show. Don't worry. And that helped me make the decision to make less money working at Turf Paradise than I would have at TVG. I ended up doing a little bit of both, but I did that one season at Turf Paradise basically on david milch's advice well when i walked off the set on that deal evidently david started calling people he was concerned that i had a mental breakdown because he and i had discussed in detail some of the gambling issues and things that i had gone through at, at, at stages of my life and you know he was a very wise man he gave me some like he could have been a psychiatrist man that guy met me and came up with a couple of quotes for me that my jaw almost dropped, like almost like he knew me my whole life. That guy reads people incredibly well. And he just talked about things about my dad and different things that were unreal. But that thing freaked him out. And I don't remember how I got word of it, but someone told me, maybe from the VIP room at Hollywood Park, they go, hey man, Milch is worried about you. Are you okay? So I went straight from there to the room. And here's the thing. At the time, the inquiry sign had come up, I guess, or was coming up on me being Renzo anyway, because at that time, I don't know if you remember or if you were following closely, Michael Mann got involved with that show. Did, were you were you into that luck show? I mean, were you into I, all I,
0: mean, I wasn't I loved it when it was on. I didn't I wasn't involved in like I didn't hear anything about the kind of the, you know, the The Milky stuff?
1: Up. Okay, yeah. so that was Milch's show. Um, you know, he had done Deadwood and he had done some other great things, I think NYPD blue and all this other stuff. But anyway, this was his baby. He created it. John Parada was one of his main writers, if not the main writer and uh and and you know did unbelievable amount of writing for the characters and such, and did a lot of work on Renzo but um what happened was that as the show got bigger interestingly that's that's what hurt me, and I think the only person that was that made it that was supposed to make it from David's deal was Gary Stevens. So kudos to Gary for actually, you know, having the look, having the ability to act and to learn his lines and to do his thing to get the gig. Because I think what happened was there became a power struggle once Michael Mann got involved and the show got bigger. And eventually, you know, David and Michael were disagreeing on strategy and on writing and on this and on that. And they gave the power of casting to Michael Mann so at at some point he said who's this guy met me once and said this guy's out (laughs) quickly it was like see you later but anyway before that happened well before it happened um david was concerned and so i come straight to hollywood park to the thing and i see him and he's like looking at me and i said david my boss told me to do this. I'll put him on the phone right now. This is a, he goes, I can't have someone unstable on my show. I go, dude. Like, Of course, I didn't say the word dude, but I'm saying, David, I promise you, this was absolutely, I, I said, if anything, that should show good acting because it's acting. I, I just followed what the boss told me to do. And I just felt like right then I was in trouble on this and I couldn't even believe that that thing was going to lead to it. But in my heart, I don't think that thing had anything to do with it. It may have because he may have just not pushed his heart or whatever. But I think I was in trouble at that point anyway. And what I heard from someone in that room, it was very bad timing for me. He had just played a huge, and I mean huge, pick six ticket and went all but one in the first leg and got blown out in New York. So he probably wasn't in a very good mood either. And I'm not suggesting that pick sixes and casting decisions are hand in hand, but he was not. You know, he was probably whiter than Casper the Ghost after that first leg, when you just leave one out. I'm gonna go look that up because developing story ran that day. It had to be that day or the next day. It was either that day or the next day, and then I want to see who won the first leg of the pick six in New York. But this guy got blown right out, and so did I. Little by little, and uh,
0: eventually, hit in that moment. What's that? He would have fired Brad
1: Pitt in that moment. Exactly. You know, I once had a girl tell me I'm no Brad Pitt as she was giving me my walking papers. just one of my favorite. Have I ever given you that line? Have I told you that? No. Well, yeah, that was one of I've had a couple of real beauties along the way, but that was, it's not like you're Brad Pitt. And I said, I, I got to agree with you on that. I mean, let's, let's look. If there's one thing <laughs> I'm known for, it's my accuracy. And Brad Pitt and I don't have much in common other than, you know, male gender. <laughs> but oh, so that thing, shit. that thing was, uh, that, that walk-off was staged it was, it was a, a Tony Alavado production, and I felt I executed it well, but it didn't do me any good. I got ripped. I mean, I took some beatings on that, on those message boards over that and all this other stuff. And, you know, when I, when I see the things that I have seen, and remember this, I called. I used to call the last race of the day every day on the fairs as a different voice. And, you know, when you think about it, that's the last leg of the pick four, pick five, pick six, impressions. There are going to be some people that can't stand the impressions. I got to believe if I was a fan listening and betting and I heard Rodney Dangerfield come in at the 16th poll as I gave up the lead, I might not enjoy that too much. In fact, I know I wouldn't enjoy that too much. So I have empathy for those who did not like my style. But I have no regrets. I did what I needed to do to get into the game at a young age and with no help from anyone, just, you know, calling and and doing it myself there was no friend or relative getting me my shot and and i'm very proud of that stuff but but you know i i've had people you know even to this day that just take some cheap shots and you know my goal every day is to be what what i want i want the haters to have the volume up because they know that i'm telling them what's happening in the race that's the ultimate compliment for me is if people who don't like me are still listening to me because they know they'd rather hear it from my perspective, watching the binoculars, watching through the binoculars, than what they're seeing on TV. That's all I want to do, man. I want to I want to satisfy every fan and be unbiased and be excited for whoever wins and to enjoy that moment and to celebrate the victories. But I've taken a lot of heat on those things, and, and it's because of things like that walk-off or the impressions and this and that. And I think it's hard for some people to then conceive that maybe I had the skills, you know, to get to the to the place that I am today, and um, you know, my, my goal every day is: look, you're only as good as your last race, and my goal is to to prove it every day that I belong as the voice of Santa Anita Park.
0: Oh, you absolutely do. So, um, I got I've got three uh, little couple of quick hitters, and yep. we'll see how long they take us. But there, Whatever there's something. Got to make sure I get from you. Um, My man TQ, our our man TQ, uh, sent me a couple of good stuff to try to get you to talk about. Uh, He said, ask him about uh, the horse, Frank the MD, that was named after him.
1: Yes, that's a good one. I've had two, two horses named after me by Bob Baffert for the owners, Mike Pegram, Carl Watson, and Paul Whiteman. The first one was a horse named Screen to Screen. Which was because I was, you know, you look up on the and whatever screen is coming up next, you just move from screen to screen, you know, you go from Aqueduct to Oakland to Gulfstream to whatever Tampa Bay Downs. That screen to screen, and then the other one they named was absolutely classic. Um, I I had one time said to one of those guys that uh, you know you, I said you know you know I went to school and you know I'm an MD right. And the guy he looked over at me, and I said, "Money Destroyer," and uh, they named a horse Frank the MD for me. They loved that. So, Frank the MD actually never made it in California, but he uh, he crushed it a few times in New Mexico. But that horse was definitely named after me, and I must say, it was appropriately named because many hundreds have evaporated under my care.
0: <laughs> what about what about this boss that you had that was the founder of Norton
1: Software, Peter Norton? Um, the great Peter Norton. Um, I just got a Christmas card from him a couple of days ago, as a matter of fact, uh, in 1986, instead of doing the right thing and being in college, I was, uh, I was, you know, not doing that. And I, I went to work, I, I went to a place called Kelly services, which was a, like a temporary agency. And, um, they gave me a job at this place on 11th Street called Bourget Brothers, some lumberyard. That didn't really work out well. That was a one-day assignment for me, one and out. I was, I, I, in fact, it's amazing because it's very close to where my mom lives now, so I drive by that place frequently, and I just shake my head, say, I can't believe I went from this place to Peter Norton. And the next day, I went into Peter Norton, which is the famous Norton, as in Norton antivirus. He had developed a program called the Norton Utilities. I, was, I went in there as a temporary. They hired me three months later. I was his ninth employee. And, um, and we had fun. I, I, in fact, during the pandemic, I went and opened some storage boxes that hadn't been open for 25 years. I found pictures, I found different things. And, um, uh, it was, uh, it was a, a real fun experience. Uh, I met my first girlfriend there. It was kind of like a Mrs. Robinson situation. She was much older than me, but believe me, it was a trade I was happy to make and, and, uh, honored to make. Um, and, uh, she was a great girl and, uh, she was she was 17 years older than me, so she wanted that thing in the cone of silence for uh, for obvious reasons, and it stayed that way. But uh, Peter's uh, Peter's a great guy. He crushed it. Uh, of the many mistakes I've made, not sticking with uh, Peter Norton Computing is in the tops because that was an opportunity to blast off beyond what any pool or single ticket could ever do at any time, but. Uh, I'm proud to have a house sat for him. You ready for an obscure story for them? Yeah. So he he liked me because I was he, he just looked at me as like a kind of a salesman guy. And so I became the distributor representative. I used to deal with all the big distributors like Ingram, Micro D, Soft Cell. Anyone in the computer business might recognize those names. And I was their guy. But I didn't know anything about like quotas. And they, I mean, there was so much I learned about sales that I wish I had. I just had a good personality. I was friendly with them. And quite frankly, this product moved so fast like it was a matter of just fulfilling their, you know, you almost didn't need a salesperson; it sold itself. But one of the things he wanted me to do for him, he goes, "You know what? I need you to negotiate." He liked the way I would negotiate, and so he had me buy a cars cars for him, and he had me sell a couple of cars for him. And one of the cars that he had me buy was a, a new BMW, and he had dealt with a lady in Beverly Hills who was like the top sales rep at Beverly Hills BMW. But he said, you know, he says, make sure you give her a shot, but you got to go, you know, to where you, you know, you got to go and please get me the best deal. So I shopped around, grinded it out. She wouldn't do it. She was so good. She just figured it was probably, you know, one to nine shot. I ended up buying the car from guess where of all places. Obviously, I had not even called a race yet. Nick Alexander Imports, as in the Nick Alexander, all the grazing babies. And uh, Nick and I have had some laughs, but his guy had the best price. And, uh, who would know that later I'd be calling, you know, some of those horses like just grazed me winning on the Breeders' Cup Undercard and so many of his other homebreds. So that was a great experience for me. I, I worked there for almost three years and I have lifelong friends from that opportunity. I had incredible experience from that opportunity and, um, it's something that I always cherish and and have the fondest memories of. I mean, that was just great. And my mom lives in Santa Monica. So it's very close to where his two offices were. One was uh, on 21st and Wilshire. And then the other one, when they moved to that big building that used to be the old phone company building on the corner of Wilshire and Ocean, that big, tall building, uh, ninth floor, we were there and uh, memories of a lifetime. And uh, I I tell you, Sometimes people get entrenched in their work and what they're doing. And that was a big family. And it was a lot of fun to get in touch with some of those people when I found some old pictures of them and sent some stuff to them on Facebook during the time when we had nothing else to do, but go through storage boxes when this thing hit in March and April.
0: You mentioned Beverly Hills. What about the candy store uh, encounter you had with a jockey in, uh, in Beverly Hills?
1: That was Walter Guerra. Um, you know, I was a chubby kid and uh what a shock right um and uh in high school time there was a pharmacy on the I think it was Roxbury south side of the street I believe it's Roxbury and Wilshire it's very close to Roxbury um we lived close to the high school which is right there right very close to where Santa Monica and Wilshire meet I'm I'm my dad had many frustrations with me I I have very strange eating habits which is no coincidence considering I'm a large man, but I don't eat i don't eat meat, chicken, or fish, and I haven't done so since about seventh grade. Um, and I, needless to say, I'm not, you know, I, I am a vegetarian. I don't eat any meat products, but however, there's an asterisk, note, very few vegetables. So um, a lot of bread goes down, a lot of carbs are inhaled, a lot of pizza slices. And uh, as a result of that, there have been rules and mandates when I grew up I remember I was at the Red Onion in Beverly Hills once with my dad and I was under a a new rule where I had to chew every time I took, you know, like a fork full of food in. He wanted to see 35 chews before I swallowed, which is pretty funny when I think back about it. And there were rules like there's no more candy. I remember there was one definite rule, no garlic bread. My mom would sneak garlic bread in the freezer from like a place that I liked. And when my dad wasn't around, it wouldn't smell. I would get some of that. I always had my mom, I owned my mom from a young age. I mean, she just, she melted like butter for me. But my dad had these rules. Well, I was under very strict, no chocolate rule. No chocolate. Well, I'm at this pharmacy. And I think it was with a buddy of mine. But I walk and I buy one of those $1 candies, you know, the white wrapper for like the charities or the, you know, Boy Scouts or whatever it is with the gold. Terrible chocolate, I might add. No offense to them, but I mean, Please. Hershey's with almonds blows that thing right away. I've always liked Hershey with almonds, but that thing was really never that good. Um, But anyway, I bought one for a buck and I'm eating that thing. And I run into a guy that I had become a big fan of, Walter Guerra. And Walter Guerra was riding for Laz Barrera. And that was the days of like, it's the one. And, you know, it was close to those days. Maybe a little bit before then, maybe like a year before, but but not much before because he wasn't really prominent until then. So it's got to be like eighty two, eighty three. So I'm like fifteen, whatever. There was I was under a no candy rule at the house. And my dad gave me good allowance. I had to do household chores and do a lot of cleaning up and stuff. But he wanted me to have a bankroll for the track on the weekends. There's no doubt about it, and I respect and love every bit of that. But anyway, at the end of the day, one day I'm fairly certain the horse that ran in the last was Peter Jones for Aaron Jones, and. I went there to get autograph an autograph, and and Walter would give me the goggles. Well, I ran into Walter that day at that pharmacy, and he saw me there. And I said, Walter, blah blah blah, da da da. We talked, and you know, I was telling him about we were talking about different horses and all that. So I'm sure a guy like him who had just come to California loved seeing a fan that's a young guy, you know, enjoying his work. And he had given me autographs and goggles before. Well, on the weekend, I don't remember if it was Saturday or Sunday. It, I think the track was muddy that day. He came back. And, and he comes through the tunnel at Santa Anita and I went to see him with my dad and and like to get goggles or an autograph. And he looks at me and he goes, I told you, don't eat chocolate. <laughs> I mean, like, don't eat candy. I don't think he said chocolate because the rule was chocolate. He says, hey, don't eat candy. Because, you know, he's trying to tell me, like, here's a guy who's basically, you know, trying to maintain his jockey weight, realizing at a young age, he doesn't want me to plump up any more than I was at the time. And that caused so much friction. In fact, there was a Pizza Hut on Santa Anita Avenue. Back when Pizza Hut was good. Pizza Hut used to be fantastic. Once they expanded, the whole quality thing went went into a different direction. I'm not saying it's not great, but it was amazing when I was a kid. Pizza Hut got canceled that night. I think I got grounded for a week. No, I mean, it was all that over the obscure running into Walter Guerra telling me, by the way, you shouldn't eat candy. I mean, the odds of that got to be five billion to one. How could that even happen? And it did. And I got in a lot of trouble over it. And uh, I guess it's fun to talk about now, but I can assure you it was not fun that week. I have a feeling I wasn't at the track the next Saturday, which must've really stunk.
0: <laughs> that is a, that's a tough go for sure. Um <laughs> you right under the bus. You mentioned Pizza Hut, and, and I, I'd be failing the people if I, if I didn't uh, touch base with you on, on, on your pizza knowledge. Unfortunately, uh, Dave Portnoy has kind of turned into the most popular pizza man in the world, but and he should be. It, but but he, he does a good job. He's he excellent. A, he goes everywhere. He's he's attacking those things. But uh, you actually sent me a piece of pizza or a, a, a box of pizza, a, a whole order when I was at a, a hotel in in, in Monmouth. I, yes. I remember you, I told you I was an order. I was asking you for advice, and you're like, stop, stop.
1: Give yeah, me you're about box. to order something from somewhere the wrong place or something. I couldn't allow yeah.
0: it. And you and you sorted me out.
1: I sent you a pizza from Rizzo's that day. I remember it was from Rizzo's. It was 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 good. I mean, it wasn't like, I mean, mean, Rizzo's is just an honest, consistent, great slice, but it's not like something you're going to, you know, you know, run through county lines to get to, but Rizzo's is, is just, you know, maybe as consistent as it gets and very good, good. All three things are good. Sauce, cheese, crust. Um, Pizza started for me at a very young age and people were laughing at me at age 10 when that's all I ate was pizza, well, fast forward 43 years, it's the same thing, I eat pizza every day, and it's not the reason I'm big, because it's, it's the other stuff, and, 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 you know, obviously, there, there are many elements, but I'm not saying pizza helps it, but I eat plain cheese pizza, I prefer light cheese, and, uh, in 2016, right before I got sick, I actually was doing a pizza tour. You'll love this. I'm doing the pizza tour on Facebook and I think Twitter too. Yes, both. And I'm taking pictures of slices along the way. What I decided on that was if the pizza was no good, I wasn't going to like call a place out saying no good. I don't want to ruin someone's business over that. I don't usually complain about bad service in a place. I will accentuate the positive but not get into the negative when it comes to service or quality or this or that. Um. And I was doing all those different reviews and then I got sick or whatever, but I remember one time seeing this, uh, 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 you know, Dave Portnoy review. I'm like, can you believe this guy took my concept and he's doing this? Like I actually thought for a minute, like that this guy loved my Facebook somehow and was doing this. I'm like, wow, look at this. This guy's eating cheese pizza. This is all I eat. You gotta be kidding me. And then I looked at it, and obviously this was a very brief thought cause I Googled it and I saw the guy was doing it years earlier, but I actually thought that he took a great concept of mine, and I really would love to do a pizza review with him one day. And he did come to the booth at Santa Anita when I called the Breeders' Cup last year, which was a big highlight for me um, because uh, I just love his pizza reviews. I mean, the guy knows his prices. Oh, I agree with this, but most of the time he's reviewed several places I've been to, and and I do think his pizza knowledge is a, is a is a ten. He knows his cheese pizza slices. There's no question. And uh, but the reviews are hilarious, and they make me laugh, and I, and I watch them. But when I met him, he was so calm and down, and and I was like, I wanted to just say like, because I know how he talks, and I could say a lot of things, and we could talk a lot of smack. But it was breeder. I was thinking like, here it is, Breeders Cup Day it was the undercard. He came for. Uh, he came, I liked Nolde, and he had Purdue, and Purdue was nowhere. But he needed Purdue in his contest when he came up. Um, but he was very nice, and we talked about the reception he had received in England and this and that. Like I, I've almost wanted to contact him since to say, hey, you didn't meet the guy you need to meet, and start throwing some voices at him, some sarcasm. I mean, some of the stuff they do, like those Barstool Sports Advisors, with the with the with the cup i mean some of it's like it gets a little old but it's funny every time i mean i'm laughing a lot the best thing ever is the one thing the sign they have it says scared money never wins no truer words were ever spoken if you're playing with scared money man best of luck to you you have almost no chance i don't know why that is but I, i i i know it to be true so i love the fact that they understand that um and some of their selections are hilarious and uh, some of their perspectives are funny, but the pizza reviews are off the charts. Excellent. And uh, I, I've got good pizza advice for wherever you're located.
0: Um, yeah. You're, you're my go-to. I tell you one place I absolutely love, and we got to make sure we show some lo- uh, love there is uh, uh, if you, if you make it to Oakland Park, DeLuca's, I, I, that place was awesome. And the, and the owner, I'm forgetting his name now.
1: Anthony.
0: Just, Anthony. Uh, he's just, when I told him that uh, you sent me, uh, I thought he was an invite me to come stay at his house. He was so nice, such a nice guy.
1: He was out of business without me at Oakland. He knows it. I know it. The whole city knows it. Um, that's where the power of Facebook and the power of the Oakland community and what Terry Wallace meant to that community um, as, as a, um, you know, as a race caller, he was like the mayor and it, it it, it. I helped Anthony, but he had the right product, and he works hard. And he and I, can, to this day, we've been talking about this now for five straight years about how we're going to take this thing to an entirely new level, and uh, and it's something I've always wanted to do, and um, it's it's a dream of mine, and I and 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 I really want to make that a reality because the one thing is, every time he feeds somebody that great DeLucas pizza, which we want to take to Kentucky for sure, and other parts of Arkansas, and then eventually California, but California is going to be way down the road because it's better in that part of the country where it, a great pizza is not something you find every other, you know, block like you do in New York. His pizza is extraordinary and the people we've sent there all love it and um you know, he and I laugh so hard and we just the, the conversations he and I have you would be in stitches. The things we talk about and the philosophies we laugh about But he's a character, but he works hard, and he deserves the success he's having now. I know he's had investors talk to him about doing some things. And my only advice to him, don't sell your dream, man. If someone's going to take this thing, you better make sure they pay you because he's got got everything. He's got the story. He's got the look. He's got the Brooklyn. He's got the nice, but he he just loves the community. He's having a good time. And to him, one restaurant so far has been enough. I'm like, dude, you're not going to be able to do this forever put five of them out there and see what happens and and stay open more than four days a week. There's so many fixed costs in there. Like, but he's doing it his way and he is having the blast of blast. He has a lot of fun. That guy I could tell you that much.
0: You know, Frank, I, I've asked, i wanted to ask you this. I never asked you. Um, and at least my time up there, I haven't. Outside of Nove, which is not close. It's not in the city. Wh- why isn't there like just a couple of killer pizza spots in Saratoga?
1: I don't know. I, I I mean, I'm I'm not sure. It uh it certainly it should be the case. But you know, I haven't spent as much time at Saratoga as you might think, but you know, I've been there a couple dozen times and um, Nove was just extraordinary. i love their pizza, but there should be one in, in every city like that.
0: Yeah, it's like almost like I'm giving giving Louis Lazanero advice here, but it's almost like they should open up like a Nove West and just have pizza like like somewhere downtown.
1: Yeah. that would be a smart idea. There was a place I had a slice at in the middle of the night one day, and it was okay but and, and it wasn't bad but yeah, something like that would kill it. It just it's just good slices and fire them out.
0: i went I never told the story before, but uh it was uh I guess maybe who was was it city of light uh maybe whoever Michael McCarthy brought someone and was in was in Saratoga for i want to say it was city of light when he ran in the forego and and irad wrote him but uh, that night we went out on Caroline street and we that there's that pizza place on Caroline street, which it's, you know, it's, it does, it's does what it's supposed to do when you had a couple of adult beverages and you're hungry at night,
1: pizza, seven and, or something. Yeah.
0: Something like that. And we went in there and McCarthy ordered like seven slices of pizza. Cause he just wanted to try them all. So we're standing in the street. There's drunk people everywhere and it's like me, him and my girlfriend. And we're like, we're all trying to hold these pizzas. And we're like trading that we're, you know, we're passing the pizzas around. This is pre COVID obviously. And, uh, and, uh, it, it was, it was, uh, it was hilarious. i would never seen someone order so many pieces of pizza. It was, it was pretty, it was a strong move by him.
1: Right. And, and, you know, you guys were probably feeling no pain right about then. And you needed some pizza in you,
0: <laughs> no pain, no pain at all.
1: Um, Frank,
0: one of the questions I always like to wrap up with, uh, you know, the people that I, I have on are, are people that, that, that love the game and are, are involved in the game in lots of different ways. And, and you know, I, I think our game is great and I don't think our game is going anywhere. We obviously have, you know, things we have to be better at and things we have to uh, to, to improve upon to, to kind of put ourselves next to the other big sports in this country, you know, baseball, football, basketball, so on and so forth, hockey. What are... Is there anything that you feel like racing needs to do better as a whole? Is there one specific thing, kind of a broader thing? But if, if someone brought you into their office and said, Frank, we got to fix this, we got we to go to the next level, what, what do you think we should do? Do you have anything that comes to mind uh, of ways to improve our game?
1: Well, I think that first of all, I mean, it's a little different now because no one can go to the races, but... Uh, you know the the main question used to always be, how do you get more people to come to the track? And I think in order to do that, you must make it a more friendly and entertaining environment. And I know that those attempts have been made. You know, Hollywood Park did the Friday Night racing where they put music and they try to get younger people out there to try to show a little bit of an interest in the sport. It's a different situation now because obviously we've got we've got you know big problems in the world, but I would say that that you know take care of your customer a little better serve them better food don't charge them as much if anything to go in remember competitor the competitive situation has changed dramatically and is changing daily and with sports wagering becoming legal in so many different states let's be honest more people would rather bet on a football game than a horse race it's just the way it is um you know and that that's part of the reason that, that there should be such a level of excitement that Fox Sports is covering those races uh, from New York and Churchill Downs now because that's big time coverage, right? Um, I would say make the experience for the fan better. That's my number one thing. You know, make sure the the the, the environment is clean, crystal clean, immaculate. How many dirty casinos do you walk into? You don't because they're always cleaning. Make it clean. Make it fresh. Make it new. Decorate it well create a little vibe, get some younger people. And I'm not just trying to say, you know, bring in 19, 20, 21 year olds, you know, people in their thirties and forties, you know, get them involved, have a little social gathering. Look at the Eddie Logan atmosphere after the good days and all that. It's a fun little vibe. You got some nice friends and couples and, you know, sharing and talking, make it more of an experience. The, you know, the world has changed so much in that people want to be entertained. They're bored. The time on the phone that everyone spends clicking, refreshing if it scores, or, you know, talking and carrying on all that stuff. It's like almost like people just don't give you personal touch anymore, which means that they're less patient, which means 30 minutes between a race is an eternity. So... What can you do to keep your fans interested? Yeah, there's other races to bet on and this and that, but does a person really care when they come to the track about what's going on in another venue right then, a new fan? No. What can you do to create more of an environment? I know that at Santa Anita, we've had little tours where they come up to the press box, come into the announcer's booth, see what people are doing, give them a behind-the-scenes look. People like to, to get involved in the intimacy of of what happens. How does it take place? where's the show put on from? Um, I think a lot of people in racing over the, you know, 25 years I've worked in it, I mean, like, they just come up with a couple of things, and that's it. I mean, everyone has dollar day on on, on a certain day. And in some places, it works, and it's great. Well, if that worked, where are the, the people who came with that can come with other ideas? What can you do to make someone enjoy The experience. I think that's the word, the experience. And I learned that from Mattress Mac because he once took me on a trip to to Las Vegas, actually, to go to all the different casinos. We walked the strip up and down, a group of about five or six of us. He wanted to see what each place was doing for the experience because at the end of the day, when people are trying to buy furniture, they have to make a decision. Should they go to gallery furniture? Should they buy online? Should they go to this guy, that guy, the mom and pop shop? Gallery furniture is an experience. You walk in there, there's fresh cookies, maybe some fresh fruit, beverages, televisions, like things to entertain. People want to be entertained. And I I believe that we're not doing enough of that and we haven't for a long time. And I think that that's why the fan base has eroded. I don't believe it's because takeout is a half a percent higher here or there. I really don't. I don't think that's the big picture thing. I think that's for the sharp guys like you who are bringing, and your buddy Marshall, who, you know, he's championing every day, and he keeps look, you know, he keeps getting on top of these or near the top of these handicapping tournaments. He's very sharp. He's a numbers analytics guy. Of course, he wants better takeout because he wants to make more money. I don't think that's going to affect the guy wanting to come out there Friday or Friday, Saturday. I, I just don't, and I'm not suggesting that we should have high takeouts. I'm just saying that that's not, what's going to reach the mainstream audience. How about clean every track up? Um, not only cleaning it, you know, physically to make sure that, the, you know, there's no dirt on the seats or this or that, but also the reforms and the, you know, stricter guidelines that Santa Anita and and other tracks have followed suit with, which is to, you know, clean up the game. And, you know, optics, those those are things that are important and, and are needed in order to, you know, keep, the fans we have and build more fans but look there's nothing quite like the feeling of being in a winner's circle I still remember my first visit in the 80s for my friend's horse and the I, I see the joy that people have in their horses so when owners bring their friends out to the track that's a great thing it's a nice social event and and they may only be running in the seventh race but now the fans are there all day and it's fun to watch a horse and cheer a horse in and put two dollars across and have some fun doing it so just get more people out there and when they come out there, make sure that they're coming to a nice facility and and that your employees are people who are smiling, not bitter or sour, but rather, you know, helping the fans have a good time. And unfortunately, it's not easy to find great help, but, you know, racing needs it, especially with the casinos and sports and all this other stuff growing. Those those, those climates work. Those environments are working. So why not try to learn from those people and put high-definition TV? Like, how many bad TVs are at racetracks that we know right to this day that are not good? Not perfect telev- telev- televisions are that expensive anymore. How much does it cost to put up real crisp, flat-screen TVs at this point? And for the last several years, how many bad TVs are there where you're having to hit the side of it to try to get your signal? I mean, really? can't do that anymore. Yeah. Take care of your customer, man.
0: Try to find the remote to change the channel. It's the worst.
1: I mean, seriously, it only goes up, but not down. You know what I mean? Like, you got to go, like, you're on channel eight, <laughs> you got to get back to six, nine, 10, 11, 12, right? You get <laughs> it.
0: Yeah. You end up with saying, Anita, sometimes you can end up on the head on channel that you can't change it back. Exactly. And you're, and you're watching the race in the head on, they break from the gate, you're alive for 12,000. You can't, it's, it, it's, uh you know. But no, I agree with what you're saying. I think the experience has to be improved. I, I've never taken anyone to the racetrack that didn't have a good time.
1: Yeah, but you're a fun guy, so that's the thing. You know, you're a fun guy. You got good energy. You enjoy the game. You know, you've been able to to do that on your television stuff now, where you just kind of you know talk about it at a level that's not above people's head, and that helps because then they're having fun, and then you you know show them, show them a few of your wagers and what you're alive to, and they're like, hey, I want some of that.
0: <laughs> well. Um, I'm super excited for you this weekend, I'm, and I'm excited for myself as well. My, like I said, one of my favorite days is, is opening day at Santa Anita, the day after Christmas. It's always there. Uh, Austin's been to probably four of them. Um, my dad and we, we kind of did a thing where we, we would fly out on, on Christmas Day, and uh, he's been to a couple with me. And, and uh, I just – something about it. I just absolutely love the day. We got six stakes on Saturday, three grade ones, and I'm, I'm so excited about the Malibu um, such a cool race. It looks like it's going to be a war. You got Nashville, Charlton, Independence Hall. Uh, you were lucky enough to call run happy and, and to get in that commercial. Something tells me that the winner of this race will likely
1: have a commercial at some point too. I mean, these are some nice horses. It'll be very fun to see how this thing unfolds and uh, very exciting. I I, uh, I, I can't wait. And it's just, uh, look, this is, I call it the great race. They call it the great race place. I call it the greatest race place. And, Uh, it's a privilege for me. And every day when I walk in that booth, uh, I do so with humility and gratitude and with, you know, with one objective to do the absolute best that I can do to help celebrate the winners. And that's all I want to do every day. And, and no matter what, when you have better horses, it's just more fun. The, The 10 claimer is just as important perhaps to that owner, but the big races are very, very fun. And, and, you know, as time has gone by, You know, I've had some opportunities to call some, some great ones and, and it's, it's just exciting when, when I'm the guy calling those races and trying to, you know, do the right thing by, you know, to capture the moment. It's a, it's a, it's a tremendous, exhilarating feeling, man.
0: Frank, I want to, to tell you how happy I am that you're back at, uh, you've been there for a while now, but you're at Santa Anita after the journey of being there, not being there, now I feel like the world is right with you. There, I'm, I'm very happy for you in that regard. I'm more happy uh, that you're on the good side of the, the health issues that you had, and uh, I'm, I'm really fortunate to call you a friend. I, I, look, you throughout this entire thing with the whole TV deal, I'm sure people just turn it on and they're like, "Oh, he," you know. It, 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 I was I used to get nervous and I would second guess whether I was doing a good job or not, or what was going on, and and, and it felt like over the last three years, anytime I needed like that kind of just that little bit of encouragement, uh, you would call me and I knew you weren't full of it because you would always call me. You would also call me and tell me when I was doing things wrong and to stop doing this, stop doing that. Hey, you're doing this, get rid of that. And so when you said nice things and encouraging things, it it stuck a little bit harder because you had, you you had kept it real with me before. So I I really appreciate that. It, It means a lot, meant a lot to me through that process as well.
1: Hey, man, you're doing unbelievable work. I appreciate what you're saying about me. I'm so proud of you. And I'm just happy for you as a friend, because when these opportunities come, it's important to answer the bell. And and you have managed to really find a fan base. And, you know, the the, the fact that there was nothing else to do but watch these shows helped put you in the spotlight to where people are either going to love you or can't stand you quickly. You're not going to have much time to make an impression one way or another. You know what they say? You can't, you don't have a a second chance to make a first impression. So you've done a great job with that. And, and, you know, you're, you know, the thing, as much fun as you're having, there's a responsibility that you have, which is to do the job and to do the homework and to you know, it's, it's not always about just picking the winner. It's about setting the table for the people and, you know, setting a cake. Cause you know, no matter how good you are, you're going to probably miss seven out of 10, no matter what. And so therefore you got to, you know, kind of just paint the broad picture and, and let the people pick after they've you know listened to your perspective and your recaps and such. And, and that's what I feel every day too, is, is that, you know, I, I always felt it would be easier for me to call it Santa Anita than somewhere else because I'm so familiar with the place. I'm so comfortable there. But with it is, you know, it's a bigger environment and a lot of people are listening. And look, people have quick triggers for, you know, taking shots. And so, you know, you got to silence the skeptics. And here's what I'll say to anyone. I have, I have to remind myself this. Look at any person in any field that's successful and go look at their twitter and see the bashing that they're taking even though they might be like the most successful artist, the most successful player, the most successful actor, they're getting ripped to shreds. So we have to we have a small community if a few people don't like what we're doing, well, you're not going to please them all. Just do the best you can every day and that's all we can do and 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 you know, if if I've given my best, Jonathan, I'm happy with the day and and I know that you feel the same way about your efforts.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, every day I just want to make sure that 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 I'm I am uh displaying my love for the game. I'm having fun and um I'm putting in the work and I'm betting my opinion. If I do those four things, you know, the haters can enjoy their uh their their vomit bags, as you like to <laughs> like you taught me.
1: The VB, my friend.
0: The VB. We'll get those VBs ready for Saturday. I'm looking forward to it. Excited to to hear you back on the mic and And uh, I'm really glad we got to sit down and do this, Frank. I know we had talked about doing it in the past and timing just didn't work out. And and I think there's no better way to do it to kind of wrap up 2020 with a little, a little bit of Frank Miramati in our lives. And then we get to hear you again on Saturday.
1: Thank you, my brother. I appreciate you Uh, honored to be your friend. And uh, it was a very warm conversation and I, all I wanted to be was candid and open. And uh, that's why I wanted to just be solo sitting here, relaxing so that we can just talk as friends. And I think that's what the fans appreciate most beautiful look forward to seeing you soon thank you my friend
0: oh that was awesome frank i appreciate the time uh i was a little bit nervous we lost the audio but we uh we saved the day you saved the day you you came back upstairs and hit upload for me so i I appreciate that i don't know what was going on with the with the system there but uh we are in business um that was a ton of fun Uh, a a great journey to 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 uh kind of see how Frank got to where he is now um and and what he's going to be doing here in the next day or so calling opening day at Santa Anita which is obviously something very important to him and dear to his heart as you heard um look it's uh it's it's been an interesting year uh that's for sure um to say the least and um I know that 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 I'm thankful for this journey of, of J.K. Plus One and just in the money media in general, and and I want to thank everyone for for kind of coming along for the ride and 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 we're hopeful that this uh, this network and this show was was something for you to use this year as a distraction through all of the the unfortunate times. I can assure you that uh, doing the show. Uh, was a distraction for us, um, for, for me particularly, and I, I can imagine for, for the rest of the crew I mean, in the money media to kind of give us something to do, give us uh, someone that we kind of felt accountable to, that we wanted to make sure we were giving good content, consistent content, and, uh, and, and just kind of helping through these hard times. So I want to thank you for that. We are – this show will – I'm assuming this show, I think, will put us over the million dollar uh, – million dollar – the million uh, download number for the year so uh definitely not million dollar but a million downloads for the year which is pretty cool it's it's something we're pretty proud of and and uh, you tag that on with the abr fan choice award uh 2020 was a good year for the in the money media podcast network so that's that's exciting so i wanted to thank everybody for that as well so um if you haven't already subscribed subscribe follow retweet tweet favorite all that good stuff um i want to thank drew coatney Uh, our, our, uh, he he was upgraded from business manager to CFO this year. Um, he, he's, uh, does a great job behind the scenes, allowing Pete and I to kind of do the fun, creative stuff. And he handles all of the, uh, the paperwork and, and contracts and, and negotiations. So I want to thank, uh, Drew and, 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 uh, his family, uh, for, for allowing us to borrow him from time to time. Uh, Naomi talk racing to me, Matt Bernier, Matty Ice, Matt Bernier show, uh, Spencer, With Redboard Rewind, Nick Luck with The Daily Podcast. Um, I always feel like I'm forgetting somebody at this point. But I think I'm good. Uh, All the contributors to In The Money Media. And two, three new shows, I think, in the mix. Definitely two, for sure, I think. (laughs) But uh, it should be a fun year in 2021. Hopefully the rest of the world cooperates uh, with, with what we've got going on um fingers crossed for that uh thanks for taking the time i hope you enjoyed the episode i hope you enjoyed all the episodes and i hope you have a merry christmas and a happy new year i need to know everything who in the what in the where i need everything trust me i hear what you're saying but i like it's new what you're telling me i'm curious george i happen to pour a five on a horse i'm ready for war i'm coming for throats to turn a ghost i need to know everything now you'll be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk so i'm letting them talk